Hello, I'm Paul Mill, and welcome to episode 36 of Defense Against the Dark Arts. There was this book, uh, there is this book on how the crowd thinks, the collective hive mind of the crowd, the singular identity of the crowd. It was read by Adolf Hitler, Benito Mussolini, Sigmund Freud, and now me. It was written in 1895 in French by a guy named Gustave Laban. The book is called The Crowd, A Study of the Popular Mind. It's not really a study. It's just a bunch of assertions on his point. But they seem to hit home or hit a lot of stereotypes or a lot of, yeah, I'd say that. But the reason why we're covering it is because it's popular in the manipulator crowd, the people who are politicians, advertising, PR, right? Uh, this is one of their Bibles, right? He, Gustav Laban is one of their prophets. So to get an idea of why they behave, why, well, why, yeah, why they behave the way they do, the why the politicians still use ad hominems to try to defame their, their uh, enemies or opposition, despite knowing that the public does not like hearing people using ad hominems, there's a reason why they do it. Even though they know it, the ad hominems are a negative, the greater negative is ruining what's called the prestige of their opponents. And that makes them less credible. And so it's a greater negative, right? It's positive by being less negative. It's still all negative, though. Concepts are our, our way of just framing what we perceive, or perceptions or concepts. This is how the the crowd thinks. Well, I got to be careful here. I got to distinguish between the crowd and all of us. Gustav sort of floats between the two. And the, I, I'd hope to think that there's a reason why he does it is because he wants everyone to realize that we are all, we are susceptible to being the crowd. We are all susceptible to being um, non-critical thinkers. I don't think that's why he does it. I hope that's why he does it, but I don't think that's why. I think he's an elitist. But I don't know. He seems to have this bizarre, you'll see, this bizarre pseudo sense of humor. <laughs> or maybe it's just me perceiving his insanity as being funny. I don't know. But uh, the idea of how the crowd acts and thinks has is, is been examined for centuries, sent millennia, thousands of years. But there's no real distinct border um, from one concept to another. It's just a, an arbitrary definition that we place there right? when we talk about our concepts. So populism is a concept that clearly overlaps in this way. Populism is a political stance that emphasizes the idea of people versus the elite. And the concept of elite is very insulting to free animals, unless you are those elite, <laughs> right? So Gustave Laban believes the crowd demands this concept of the elite. The, the crowd wants a hero, a superior, to lead them. But today, this elite is the antithesis of a hero. They are the lowest scum trying to usurp power and domination over other people. And their lapdog legacy media are the obedient, uh, or are obedient to their evil. It's very grotesque. Uh, the idea of populism is portrayed as the will of the people by the people. 
and it is framed to be the lowly peasants by those loyal to the elites or the scum usurpers themselves. So how someone stands on populism is an important battleground on this information war we find ourselves in. Populism is now ironically hated by communists who are supposed to be of the people, but are clearly not. Communism is about centralization of power to the central elite, not equality to the people, right? Equity, right? The equality of outcome. This is, these are the evil premises that are being thrown at us, right? Here we go with the framing of uh, concepts that overlap. And our struggle is to find the ultimate truth of these concepts, if they're even true. So we mustn't confuse populism with a mob, which a lot of people are doing. Populism is the will of the people, the normal people, whereas the mob implies an emotional, irrational outburst from a feral group, right? This is the, this is, it's murky because as we know, people's beliefs can be manipulated by mass psychosis and manifest in calm, otherwise rational people who are by definition wrong, <laughs> right? Real psychosis means an abnormal condition that results in difficulties in determining what is real and what is not. Like I said in an earlier podcast, it's not abnormal to have difficulties determining what is real in a world of professional manipulators and liars. We are all exposed to legacy news media, politicians, advertisers, and salespeople. And we can't know what they say is real or not. Now, I'm saying like true, real as in true. I mean, obviously them speaking, right? If you, this, the, 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 the uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The uh, clinical term. Right, for psychosis is somebody not knowing if somebody's actually standing there telling you something. This, this is, we're, we're, we're backed off a little bit on that. And we know there's somebody there. We just don't know if what they're saying is true or not. So I'm being a little hyperbolic with my definitions here, right? Just a little bit, but it's the same concept. We don't know what's real. If somebody says it's a red block in the trunk of their car, right? We don't know if there really is. This is almost quantum physics, right? The cat in the box, right? We don't know if it's a red box in the trunk of their car, despite them telling us that until we look, right? So we don't know what's real. We don't know if the cat's alive or dead, right? So like, uh, uh, apparently Gustav's book, you know, had a, an effect, a profound effect on Sigmund Freud. Now, I'm not a big fan of Sigmund Freud. I'm not a big fan of Hitler, and I'm not a big fan of Mussolini, you know, but apparently all three of these people were, you know, deeply affected by this book. And I think it's because they're not critical thinkers, because I think Gustav was probably speaking tongue in cheek for quite a bit of it. And these guys took it literal. It's like these people, the literalists read the Bible and, oh, it's literal. This is literally what happened, right? Instead of metaphors or, you know, whatever. Um... But perhaps I should be uh, more motivated, <laughs> like Hitler and Mussolini, to to want to take over the world, right? But even if I was, I mean, that doesn't change the fact of, of this book being more uh, more of a, I think, a joke than to be taken literally. But Gustav's observations, uh, they didn't really have a profound effect on me. Well, they did have an effect. I mean, it's 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 the it's the question we're all trying to to answer ourselves. You know, uh, I found him interesting, but 
mostly anecdotal. Right? This is not really a study. Like, it's a study of the population. It's not. It's not a study. It's a. Uh, it's him just talking, right? making assertions, even though a lot of his assertions are uh, based on popular stereotypes of the day, I guess. And a lot of people believe that. A lot, of, it's, a lot of people seem to believe, you know, stereotypes. Oh, that's what that is. I think that that's what it is. Right? No, we, we can be critical. About Anyways, we can only speculate about the effect these concepts, Gustav's concepts, have on tyrants. You know, there's a correlation uh, that they read it, but was there any causation or actual effect or effect, you know, on them? Did, did you know, did Hitler actually take this guy's, you know, I'm, I'm trying to talk about what the causation correlation of this book, you know, people say, well, look, if Hitler read it, you know, Mussolini and Freud, and, and they became, you know, successful in their evil endeavors, right? Well, we don't know that it was the reading of this book that made them successful. We don't know that it was, you know, they even utilized anything in this book, right? But, you know, I've, I've read, I read all books by all these evil people, you know, Marx and Mao and, if Stalin, I think Stalin has a book. I haven't read that yet, but if there is one. I heard, uh, what's his face? Saddam Hussein actually wrote a book. I want to read that, but I think it's probably banned because he outs all the CIA stuff, right? Anyway, so I read Mein Kampf. For those of you who don't know, that's the My Struggle by Adolf Hitler. And uh, I don't recall any reference in his book to Gustav Le Bon, but I read it decades ago. And it was, you know, pretty, wasn't very exciting, right? It was kind of funny reading, you know, the words from this guy and some people debate that he even wrote it you know he dictated it apparently in some prison or something and some guy might have you know taken liberties who knows i don't know people are always trying to change history so who knows what really happened but for anyone uptight about me about my reading mein Kampf, reading it doesn't make it doesn't make one uh, a nazi <laughs> right just like reading marx does not make me a communist if, if anything it makes me an anti-communist right so you're reading these books and like reading mao didn't make me a maoist you know or reading the torah doesn't make me a jew right reading the bible doesn't make me a christian you know reading about muhammad doesn't make me a muslim reading about buddha didn't make me a buddhist right reading the toronto star doesn't make me a complete idiot <laughs> even though you know, because I'm reading it critically. I'm not just like, oh, Toronto Star. Yeah, these people are smart. <laughs> right? Gustav writes, uh, the substitution of the unconscious. Okay. <clears throat> I need to get his, well, I'm not going to say it with a French accent because I don't know if he spoke with a French accent. I don't know if he even spoke English. So I don't know how you would say it in English. But uh, the, so this is, oh, yeah. So I read a translated version of the book. Even though he wrote it in French, it was translated, I think, a year or two after the original so my, my there, there might be some, you know, uh, variations in the translation, right? Yeah. Anyway, so he, he wrote, uh, the substitution of the unconscious action of crowds for the conscious activity of individuals is one of the principal characteristics of the present age. The substitution of the unconscious action of crowds. So he said the crowds are acting unconsciously. <laughs> they're, they're they're unconscious so i you know it's subconscious i'm assuming right so so they're on the unconscious mind so obviously he defines unconscious as you know your subconscious you're not consciously de determining yourself uh for yourself in your frontal lobe your actions it's just an unconscious action right 
for the conscious activity of the individuals is one of the principal characteristics of the principal. So he's saying the principal characteristic of the crowd, his crowd, the Gustavian crowd, I'm calling him because his name's Gustav. So I'm going to call his crowd, the Gustavian crowd, because he's talking about a specific crowd that I think it's his own definition. It's not the, you know, how we interpret crowds. So his conjecture is that individuals, um, th their consciousness is being replaced by the, or their conscious, or their unconscious, yeah, their consciousness is being replaced by the unconscious action of the crowd. So the, the crowd's consciousness is uh, taking over their, their, their consciousness. This is, this is what Gustav says. That sounds insane, right? Well, it pretty much is. But <clears throat> the fact that a lot of people read this and still today they follow it stuff. So some of this stuff you're like, wow, really? Yeah, really. I mean, uh, Gustav... And now you got to be careful about your interpretations when he when, when he says stuff he tries to be you know whoosh, you know over the top kind of stuff um but his, his, the conjecture just means you know uh, uh, an opinion or a judgment based on in, uh inconclusive or incomplete evidence uh it's guesswork but it's it's not a random guess right so he's his conjecture is not just a random guess it could be, but it's, it's, you know, generally it's based on observations and anecdotes, right? So, uh, not to say that it's true, right? Or not to say it's false either, right? His reasoning is not based on the deduction of proofs or induction from statistics and data. He's using the, the heuristic or the, uh, what's that called? Um, uh, Abductive. He's, he's using the best guess of abductive reasoning. So, right, so you got deduction, you know, it's proven. Then you got induction, right? You induce it from statistics and data. You can't say for certain, but it's most probably this, right? And that's what we use mostly in science now, right? And then there's also the, the best guess of abductive reasoning. So anything below deductive uh, reasoning has, well, none of them have a guarantee. Yeah, anything below deductive reasoning has no guarantee of being true so we need to keep this in mind so long as we recognize the benefits and limitations of the various patterns of reasoning the most important being that beyond deduction there is no guarantee of anything being true you think about how we frame bits of reality into concepts right like the color red it's a part of the visible rainbow that we see we frame a portion of the spectrum and we call this bit of band red and the next bit we call orange then yellow but they're all a, a gradient it's like the heap fallacy there's no distinct point that red becomes orange now there might be with technology you know we might have some but humans we can't really pin it exactly to this you know uh chroma level right it's 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 uh it's like the heap fallacy at what point does, you know, a couple grains become a pile? You know, how many specific grains does it take to be a pile, right? Before it's just a couple grains. Uh, at what point does red become orange? I don't remember his name, but there was a uh, professor at uh, Stanford of uh, behavioral, behavioral, <laughs> behavioral psychology who referred to these uh, framings that I'm talking about as buckets. Now, it's kind of, you know, very quantizing of... Uh, ideas and concepts right and that these buckets were bad as they created blind spots now i don't think that uh it's intrinsically bad there are bad aspects right because we <laughs> as how our human minds think we have to 
quantize things, right? We have to, you know, if you don't have the concept of red, right, it's not bad, <laughs> you know, to have the concept of red. So, quant, you know, you know, categorizing something or quantizing it or putting it in a bucket is not a bad thing, despite what you know the Stanford idiot says, right? So the the, uh, you know, he, he's talked about these these uh, blind spots uh, where these buckets meet, you know, orange red. Right, the extremes of our framing that are that are different. Um, different language people see things differently because you know they pick arbitrary points of the spectrum. So maybe somebody else doesn't have you know orange or red; they just have sort of red, and that includes yellow to green. Who knows? I don't know. Right, but I have to call bullshit on this overgeneralization because there are people who, regardless of language, break down the color spectrum to more than just the primary colors. Right of um, or or red, orange, yellow, green, blue, violet. You know they include framings of many other colors like cyan and magenta, chartreuse, turquoise, cerulean, fuchsia, and many more. Uh, these buckets are not based on language; they are based on the individual's depth of knowledge or sophistication of a certain concept. You know they could be artists or maybe you know fashion or who whatever. Right? They 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 if somebody works with colors. They would be able to rhyme off a ton more colors because they have broken down the concept into a more sophisticated framing, more finer buckets, right? And it's not just based on their language, right? It's more based on what they do. And and this is something we all do with every day when we talk with someone who may not be sophisticated as we are on a certain topic or somebody who is more sophisticated on a topic than we are, right? They might have a larger bucket or a simpler bucket that encompasses more stuff. We may have a bucket that's broken up into thousands of more subtle sub-buckets or subtle concepts, nuance, right? And they have a more sophisticated framing on a subject that we, you know, that they more know more than we do about something, right? So recognizing this allows us uh, to know that A may not equal B as we naively thought, and that our limited experience, you know, on, on a topic, but A may, may uh, more precisely uh, be explained as being equal to D, E, F, G, H, I. I don't know if you're following me. All right, so manipulators are lazy thinkers and often like to simplify by throwing all the complexity and nuance of a concept into an er, uh, overly simplified framing or bucket. Now, it could be because they are, I don't like the... I could say this because it feels more satisfying to say it's because they are more simple, right? Manipulators, they just don't know the nuance and the complexity, right? But that that's a moronic take because these people usually do know, right? Now, you could be arguing with an idiot who doesn't know and they are oversimplifying things. But generally, if somebody is into manipulation, they do know the nuance. They do know how sophisticated something is and they are intentionally oversimplifying it to the point of, you know, it being wrong. It's a logical fallacy, right? It's a I don't know what that one would be called, but I'm sure we could come up with a name for it. We could put quantize it and put it in a bucket, right? That fallacy to be able to understand it better, right? So we we all do that. We all oversimplify things uh, at times, right? We use heuristics. You know, we, we when we don't have the time or resources to dig into something deeper, you know, but we should be aware that we're doing it and we're removing the precision right, of, of the concepts, the precision of thought, the nuance, right? We're oversimplifying, and, and that's dangerous if we don't know we're doing it. It's even dangerous if you do know you're doing it. Gustav argues that crowds 
have a collective consciousness that is independent of the individual's rational thought. One might rush in and assume, uh, assume that Gustav is arguing that the crowd is operating on some instinct, but Gustav explicitly ex uh, claims that this is not the case. He claims that they are operating against their instinct of self-control. <laughs> you know, to me, the mentality of the mob appears to be instinctive, but Gustav is not referring to just a mob. And when you, when you, when you come across people who you know have been uh, brainwashed by the news, and you're like, whoa, have you not researched this? Here's some actual you know, <laughs> evidence, right? Some, some proofs that, uh, anyways, uh, you, you, you see it. You see that they're not being rational, and they, they get emotional. Right. And they could be irrational about everything else. But when it comes to that one topic, they don't want to hear. They don't want to see the evidence. Right. Uh, they're definitely not going to take the, the effort to look at it right, or search it out on their own. If they did, they wouldn't be brainwashed. Right. So those type of people who do take the energy to research it are, wow, I was wrong. Or that is what they said was wrong. <laughs> Anyways, uh, so the, the mentality of the mob appears to be instinctive. If you think about, you know, a mob, right? But Gustav is not referring to them to, to just a mob. His concepts of the crowd include any mass of people where his psychological law of the mental, uh, <clears throat> what's he say? The, the psychological law of the mental unity of crowds comes into play. So he says the, you know, it's like a hive mind, right? It's, it's bad form to jump ahead and assume you know what a person means before you hear their entire explanation uh you know i like what he says about belonging to a a certain school of thought you know he wrote to belong to a school is necessary uh necessarily to espouse its prejudices and preconceived opinions right so a school of thought now i like that but to belong to a school of thought you know we don't have to be owned by any of the by any thoughts, we can be exposed to a, a school of thought, analyze it, be critical of it, verify or disprove its parts, and hold the plausible bits as plausible, the facts as facts, and disregard the disproven and recognize that it's a frame, it's a bucket, right? Going back to our, our Stanford bucket. But there are going to be lazy people that just regurgitate the school of thought. And I think that's a lot of us, probably most of us, just regurgitate the school of thought because we're too lazy to think about things with its prejudices and preconceived opinions. We see this today, you know, people regurgitating what the news told them now without being critical, right? In the news, giving opinions, you know, emotionally based, you know, like calling uh, a whole group of people uh misogynistic racists right that is the trudeau uh ad hominem against anybody who protests against or has a different opinion to him right so anybody regurgitating that is an absolute moron right because one they didn't look into it and two they're just regurgitating they're just repeating it right they're 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 uh oh i don't know a parrot they're parroting it Laban writes that despite the extreme mental inferiority of crowds, it is very dangerous to meddle with their organization, notwithstanding this inferiority. 
Now, I've given many speeches and spoken in front of many large crowds. I would agree that individuals behave differently in a crowd than one-on-one, but they can still grasp complex ideas. Jokes, you know, things implied. Sometimes only a few people will get it, but other times the majority of the crowd will, right? I never saw a crowd develop a collective mental inferiority, but I never gave very emotional speeches. But I have seen people who seem to be brainwashed by uh, news media and politicians, and they do, who are otherwise rational, intelligent people, and they do seem to, when it comes to that, specific topic they do seem to be mentally inferior they they delusional they don't want to hear evidence that it's, it's it's emotionally based right and I, we're probably i'm sure we're all susceptible to that that's you know a critical thing to realize right when you start getting emotional about things and you, you're not looking at the evidence but when you do look at the evidence you see it's bullshit you can call them assholes you can say ah, it's bullshit right? but the crowd can be misinformed misdirected or disinformed but i don't see how the mental capacities become inferior but but they do this is where gustav is right like i i had a difficult time with this because you know you when you read it you're like ah, i want to believe that but then it's bullshit but then you come across people you see you know and you're like mm. right that, that one specific person that i've spoken with <laughs> does seem to be you know mentally inferior on this one specific topic how is that possible right and you think well maybe my you know happens to be anyways gustav claims that the reason they become mentally inferior is because they are social organism and social organisms can be as complicated as any being and it is beyond our power to force them to undergo a sudden transformation now sounds plausible Right, if you the psychology, but I mean, you can suddenly change your mind. But if you've been conditioned to, uh, you know, have like like a cult or the news, right? The, they give you in case anybody says this, this is what you should think, right? Or you should think of somebody this way if they happen to ask this question, right? Right? This is literally where we're at now, where, where people, you know, oh, you're not supposed to ask that question. What do you mean, right? Right? How could you how could you know adverse long term effects without long term studies? Oh, you can't say you can't say that. We're gonna kick you off Twitter. I was literally kicked off Twitter for saying that. But uh, uh, Gustav is implying that uh, the individual is capable of undergoing sudden transformation uh, to become a cell in the crowd. Right. So this is this kind of a funny thing where he's one way it's possible for them to be suddenly transformed. But the, you know, isn't the, isn't the individual a complicated being, right? So if the individual is a complicated being, according to Gustav, right? And, and complicated beings are not capable of rapid transformations, then how could they rapidly transform into the crowd? Which he says they do, right? So some of his logic is not quite sound, but there could be more complexities that I'm not grasping, right? This, this maybe the... Maybe the, the experimental evidence shows something different, right? How does being complicated, you know, uh, but yeah, how is being complicated proof that sudden change is, is beyond our power, right? Something complex can't change. Like a computer is really complicated and they can change things you know, instantly, right? But uh, complexity 
does it mean? Like, I mean, he's, he's, he's conflating mass and inertia with sudden change. Like, you can't suddenly change the direction of a ship because of the mass, right? The mass and the inertia, right? It doesn't want to change. It can't, for whatever reason, the magic of physics, you know, the forces at play. You can't change direction, but there's nothing stopping your, your, your consciousness from changing an, an opinion, right? You talk to any woman. Get edit that part out. <laughs> All right. So using the using the principle of charity, we have to interpret his meaning that a crowd, due to the numbers, makes it more difficult to suddenly change. What exactly are we changing? Our minds, our opinions. So he must be claiming that once a crowd has achieved this magical collective consciousness and is one mind that that mind is difficult to change. Now that sounds a little more plausible that if there is this collective mind, that that collective mind would be difficult to change because you can't change this collective mind just by changing one mind of the, you know, one individual. You have to change the mass of the people. I don't know if everybody could change, if you could turn a thousand light bulbs on and off at the same time. I don't know, right? (laughs) But I don't know, perhaps, perhaps... There is a, some sort of conscious inertia with a mass of people. I don't know. I don't think so. There's no evidence. Well, maybe there is evidence towards that. I shouldn't say that. I haven't seen evidence, but it's possible. I mean, the stereotype indicates that there could be. Right? There are a lot of people who mimic the crowd without knowing exactly what's going on. Uh, it could be based on our attention or things beyond our control. If I walk out of a shop onto a, a, a busy city street and everyone, everybody was running in one direction and, you know, it was not a marathon, even if I could not see the danger, I might perceive that there's plausibly unknown danger. Uh, you know, they must be running from something. And so then I'd probably start running with them. It's not that I'm not thinking. I'm thinking, you know, heuristically, you know, it could just be a bunch of pranksters, a mob, uh, what do you call it, a uh, flash mob. Or it could actually be there's, you know, uh, Gigantosaurus is smashing the uh, the city and these people are running from it. Right? So, it, you know, it's, it's not a bad instinct if everybody's running to run that direction, right? If somebody asked me why I was running, I would answer because that's what the crowd was doing. Now, you say you're an idiot because you're following the crowd. Well, in that situation, probably not. There's some logical reasoning, right? Our, our instincts have, have taught us that when you see a mob running, maybe it's not a bad thing to run with them, right? You don't know why, but, you know, does it mean you don't question why are we running or look around, you know? But uh could be, you know, a mass shooter. Who knows? This could be uh, what Gustav was referring to, you know, people acting uh, a certain way without knowing exactly why, simply because the crowd was. But this is not what Gustav was talking about, you know, because that is an instinctive reaction, uh, a survival instinct. And Gustav explicitly said the crowd is not operating on their instincts of self-control. So he knew that we might interpret it this way. And he explicitly said, no, this is not the Gustavian crowd. It's something else. So what is he trying to explain? He, he, he writes that there's nothing more fatal to a people than the mania. Mania? Mania. Mania. Than the mania. Jesus, that word sounds funny now. The man, mania of great reforms. Mania. You're a maniac. The mania. Mania. 
<laughs> Anyways, so there's nothing more fatal to a people than the, the mania of great reforms. However, excellent those reforms may appear. Reforms take place over a substantial period of time. So he's not referring to the instinctive uh, everyone is running from something situation. He goes off the rails a bit and he says pure reason is very often contrary to practical reason. Now we got to be careful about definitions here, right? And so we can interpret this to be that theory isn't always correct and practical experience is generally more accurate. Uh, but again, it depends on how he defines pure reason and practical reason. What level of reasoning one uses for his pure reason? Does he mean pure reason is deductive reasoning and practical reason is inductive or abductive reasoning? But when it comes to pure reason, we have things like truth tables, which are unarguably correct. If a practical uh, reason disagrees with the truth, truth table, there's something wrong with the practical reason. Right? The ancients conflated speculation with uh, theoretical, as in hypothesis, and called ponderings pure reason. Now, you can kind of see how they thought that, because I'm just reasoning it out, right? But while practical reason had to do with experimental or performance of uh, observational actions, but these are just framings uh, or buckets. You know, they're, you know, as all definitions are, they're, they're just definitions. They're defining that which means they're framing it and putting it into a bucket. And some people use slightly different buckets, right? So I'm not sure what definition he's using for practical reason and pure reason. So we're going to have to put a pin in that one for now. <laughs> Gustav, he, he rambles on a bit about um, different perspectives, which is generally a good thing, right? It sounds like he's, uh, he's riffing on Aristotle's cave people and their shadow world you know, who only see two-dimensional shadows versus the others who comprehend three-dimensional reality. Those, so in his case, it's the, uh, you know, the, the two-dimensional, the people who don't leave the cave are the sheeple and those red-pilled people who manage to take a step out of the cave and see three-dimensional reality are like, wow, man, they go and they try to explain to the, the, the blue-pilled cave people. You know what I mean? This, this metaphor is thousands of years old. I mean, uh, What's that stupid movie, The Matrix? They, uh, they didn't, they didn't create this idea, right? Or the, uh, Aristotle, and I'm sure people before Aristotle, you know, had this this idea of the red pill and the blue pill, right? The the people who, you know, anyways. So maybe you know, maybe Gustav is uh, using a metaphor for his the the three dimensional perspective, and you know, in uh, in a more dimensional reality, like a four-dimensional, you know, beyond time, a four-spatial dimensional. A lot of thinkers head down this rabbit hole when it comes to consciousness and the dimension of mind. One of my heroes, Rod Serling, being one of the more well-known in pop culture, the dimension of mind. <laughs> How cool is that? So uh, I like that Gustav recognizes the complexity of the issue and that complex systems are uh, impossible to grasp as a whole and to foresee the effects of their reciprocal influence. It, it seems, uh, too, that behind the visible facts are hidden at times thousands uh, 
of individual or indiv- uh, invisible causes. Gustav sounds, uh, you know, a bit like uh, the Jordan Peterson of the 1890s, right? So <clears throat> he he refers to the thousands of invisible causes from a complex system as an immense unconscious working. He refers to thoughts and desires that come from our minds, yet we are not fully cognizant of it or from where they come. So it's a little trippy, right? He gives a nice model the, uh, that we see the perceptible phenomena. Now, phenomena the word, you know, the, the, the beginning, the, the etymology of phenomena actually means observable, right? Uh, like a, uh, the, the pheno part, phenotype, right? It, it's observable. The, the, so it's kind of redundant to say the perceptible phenomena. So something you, you, if you, if you visualize, if you see it, it's, it's, you know, redundant to say it's perceptible because you perceived it. Anyways, so it's, uh, but he said he uh, he gives a model about the perceptible phenomena, uh, as he calls it, is the only it's it's only waves of an ocean. So what you perceive, the phenomena that you perceive, right? so the phenomena I sh- you shouldn't need perceive. I'm gonna stop. Uh, is the the waves of an ocean, but the unconscious working that is beyond the reach of our analysis is the vast deep lying disturbances in the depths of the sea. Of which we know nothing. I'm sure uh, we must have learned, you know, something since then. But I've read people argue that there's no subconscious, which is, I believe, idiotic. As we know, there are workings in our brain that we are not conscious of. I'm not conscious of my blood pressure or my heart rates or even my breathing unless I think of it. So those are like subconscious right? phenomena. And, and, and phenomenon is an interesting uh, word, too. I think it was the ancient Greeks or uh, Immanuel Kant or that Leibniz guy or all the above, probably. I don't know. But I've read somewhere that uh, someone had this bit where he framed or defined phenomenon as an observable, an observable event as opposed to an event which cannot be directly uh, observed, which he called noumenon. So... Phenomenon is something you observe, you can observe, and noumenon is something that you cannot observe. <laughs> so that's got a noumenon and phenomenon. So a noumenon, which is a pretty cool concept if you think about it, something that you cannot observe. So noumenon is not an event. Uh, uh, it's not an event that is just not observed. It's an event that cannot be observed. Right? It's impossible to observe it. But now I think it's defined as an event uh, that exists independent of observation. You know, this whole quantum insanity, right? So it sounds quantum physics-y, but it's not. Because the quantum, the, the quantum heads claim that uh, an event is not uh, observed and is, is it's only a probability function and does not exist until it's observed. Uh, so the idea of can or can't be directly observed is is a vague concept. It's, it, it is not directly observable due to current technology or circumstances, or is it a fundamental part of objective reality that can not be uh, directly observed, like the quantum heads claim, right? Like the, uh, the Heisenberg uncertainty principle where we cannot know both, you know, position and momentum, you know, 
these are all this models, right? We, in the future, we might find it's all bullshit, right? So there's a limit according to this, uh, to his model or uh, bucket or framing, however you want to call it. Numenon is also defined as something that can only exist in the dimension of mind, an abstract concept like a god or the concept of infinity, which circles back to theoretical versus practical. But then if you can observe something in your mind, doesn't that make it a phenomenon? No, I guess not. According to this definition, it's a noumenon, right? A noumenon is a theoretical thing and a phenomenon is a practical thing. So it's all a little slippery depending on how we interpret it. But uh, we know these are just buckets or framing of the concept of the spectrum of events or things. Uh, do they exist in objective reality? Are they provable to exist and are true? Are they abstract concepts that still have logic of being true and false? Or are they just like math? Or are they just a sea of uh, abstract ideas that may or may not be true? Like dreams. You know, but just because something's mathematical doesn't mean it's true. There's a lot of you know, theorem, mathematical theorems that are proven false. Right? Just because it's math doesn't mean it's true. Gustav writes, crowds display a singular inferior mentality, yet there are other acts in which they appear to be guided by those mysterious forces in which the ancients called destiny, nature, or providence. So this is, that was Gustav saying that, right? So which Gustav calls the voices of the dead and whose power is impossible to overlook, although we ignore their essence. That is some pretty spooky, hardcore shit right there, right? <laughs> so this guy's a little, right? He tries to equate the, the, this mysterious instinct or guidance with the concept of language as proof that it exists and how we as a species species instinctively create language. He's implying there's some sentience external to us creating our language. I could argue that this is just an assertion and that there aren't people creating our languages beyond us. We instinctively just do it, but that does not refute his claim. He's implying that instinct to create the language is from this mysterious dead people place and does come from Serling's dimension of the mind. We aren't conscious of it, but the mechanics beyond that are as yet unknown to me, at least. So we can, of course, uh, create words and define new things, but that is not language uh, with its verbs, tenses, and all the, the English uh, and grammar crap that I never paid attention to in school. Uh, the fact that I can still communicate without being conscious of the structure of the language is actually kind of bizarre. Similar to uh, Carl Jung, who talked about humans not being born tabula rosa. That is being born with a blank mental state. Uh, we are born with instincts and some kind of innate programming. You know, again, going back to the whole nature nurture, right? If we dropped a bunch of babies on an island and they managed to survive, they would create their own language. This is just hardwired into us. Yes, that is an assertion and it's, you know, but they would, right? I guess this is the Creole, right? You, you throw a bunch of people together, but that's slightly different because they all had languages and they kind of merged their languages. But again, uh, this does not refute his conjecture. 
where does that hard wiring of us creating languages come from? Gustav writes that this unconscious instinct that reveals itself is in the common consciousness of the crowd and maybe the secret of its strength. Like how creatures in the wild accomplish acts whose marvelous complexity astounds us. He claims that the reason of the individual is a recent development in our species and is still not developed enough for us to figure out the laws of the unconscious, the deep sea of decisions made by instinct. <laughs> I don't know if it's a recent development in our species or not, but he doesn't give any evidence for that or if there are laws of the unconscious as he assumes, again with no evidence. Who's to say there are laws of the unconscious? Maybe it's chaos interacting with objective reality with a touch of instinct. Who knows? He claims the part played by the unconscious in our lives is still immense and that played by reason uh, is, is relatively small. The unconscious acts like a force still unknown. How is he, he quantifying the percentage? How does he know if unconscious is more in control than the conscious, you know, conscious reason? How does he know? <laughs> How is he quantifying that? You know, for those who, who differentiate subconscious with unconscious, I'm not right now. I'm, I'm allowing him to use it. So uh, I'm using the term unconscious in the same bucket as subconscious. I'm conflating the concepts for now because that's how Gustav uh, used them. He was using a larger bucket. So it's not accurate for me to assume he meant red when he wrote color. <laughs> right? To clarify, I make mistakes all the time. Sometimes I catch them. Sometimes I don't. This is not one of those times. Just in case uh, someone who's wondering why I'm saying unconscious, Freud even conflated the two. Not that he's a hero or anything. That dude had a lot of shit wrong. Gustav writes, if we are to remain within the safe limits of science and not to wander in the domain of vague conjecture and vain hypothesis, all we must do is take note of such phenomena as they are accessible to us. Every conclusion drawn from our, our observation is therefore premature, for behind the phenomena we see clearly are other phenomena that we see indistinctly, and perhaps behind these yet others which we do not see at all. That's some good thinking right there, right? Behind the phenomena that we see clearly, there are other phenomena that we see indistinctly and behind perhaps behind these there are others we do not see at all that is some well-aimed creative conjecture uh conceptual probing with penetration <laughs> gustav writes that the uh, the great changes in civilization that we see are actually brought about by great changes in the ideas of the people the waves and the ocean the visible and the unknown causes. I would argue that great changes come from very small catalysts, like the butterfly effect in chaos theory, which claims the, the wind from a butterfly's wings can cause a chain of events that lead to a hurricane in some distant land, right? Complex systems, chaos theory. You know, what's the, uh, like that uh, movie Inception, right? Little tiny things. You can incept little things. Anyways, Gustav goes on talking about his world in a state of change that is changing into something, right? The world is always in a state of change. 
just sometimes that changes are very slow. The world isn't turning into a butterfly from a caterpillar. The world is changing nonstop, like a kaleidoscope turning into another kaleidoscope, right? Gustav wrote that among the changes, the key changes to changing society are the changing sources of authority. Hmm. People stop trusting one source and change to other sources, which is healthy as it destroys dogma. Laban claims the only constant in society is the power of the crowd. Ultimately, the power is always with the crowd. But if someone controls the crowd, they control the power of the crowd. This is why ad agencies and PR firms, mass media are so powerful today. And why the councils and royalty, you know, uh, the councils of royalty cared what the masses believed, right, to a varying extent in later years, right, because the crowd started getting more power especially after the French Revolution or during the French Revolution, right? Gustav writes that when the power is in the hands of the people, societies always collapse. (laughs) He equates the crowds to barbarians. Now, he didn't say when the power is in the hands of the crowds, his Gustavian crowds, he said that when the power is in the hands of the people, that's different. So he's here, he's being a little east, right? Societies always collapse. He equates the crowds or the people to barbarians and writes that civilizations are only created and directed by small intellectual aristocracies and never by the crowds. He writes that the crowds are only powerful for destruction. So Gustav is clearly showing his hand as an elitist centralizing power right perhaps uh his book's purpose is a propaganda piece against the people uh, against populism and and pro elites pro elitism maybe he had to to say that because the publishers of the time were all elitists which makes sense right but gustav is is contradicting himself here by one claiming that the only constant in society is the power of the people, and two, when the people have the power, there is only destruction. Well, then there should always be nothing but destruction, because ultimately the power is always with the people. Uh, That could be a false uh, conclusion on my part, right? I don't know how much uh, we read about um, power, I can say that there's destruction when power is centralized in the hands of the few elite. Tyranny is a lot easier with centralized power. Just look at every dictator in history. Mussolini, Hitler, Napoleon, Pol Pot, Stalin, Trudeau. All advocates of centralized power and for a reason. Gustav writes that civilization involves fixed rules, forethought for the future, and an elevated degree of culture, all of which crowds are incapable of realizing. (laughs) Are Laban's assertions true? No, they are not true. Rules and laws are changing all the time, and there are a lot of people whose full-time job it is to do so, right? 
He knows this. He should know this. Does civilization require forethought for the future? What level of humans don't require forethought to survive? Nomads needed to know migration patterns of their herds. Settled uh, people need to know the seasons, you know, for planting and, and, you know, for the different food sources. You know, are there some savages living in the jungle that can just survive off of random monkeys and berries? Perhaps, but they would not be responsible stewards of the land and would probably screw up their resources by overhunting and fishing or doing it in a season when the species is vulnerable or irresponsible hunting like killing the females and screwing up the resources to the point of their extinction. Does civilization require an elevated degree of culture? How does Gustav divine, divine, define an elevated degree of culture? Culture is normally defined as the social behavior of a human society. Their knowledge, belief, arts, laws, customs, capabilities, habits. Civilization is defined as a complex society that is characterized by urban development social stratification so by definition communism is not permissible in civilization a form of government and symbolic systems of communication so if they don't have reading and writing or a city or town then technically they are not a civilization it appears gustav is correct to have a town or city you have to have people who know how to build stuff which requires elevated culture which includes an elevated knowledge of math, material science, and some basic physics. Is there a situation where the crowd leads to a better society? Yes, the American Revolution, the French Revolution. But when they revolt and change a society, they can be violent, but not necessarily. Look at the separation of Czechoslovakia. It was peaceful. Now, did they create a new society? No, they reverted back to two presumably older societies, I guess. Is there a situation where the crowd uh, led to a horrible society? Yeah, of course. Look at the Bolsheviks, the Soviet Union hellhole under Stalin, or the Iranian Revolution. Every system of government today does have a minority of people making decisions on behalf of the crowd. That is the definition of a government, right? Even though the... The leaders are clearly not scared enough of the crowd, at least not in the, the Five I countries. Gustav equates the crowd to microbes that eat a dead or dying body and society as that body. When society has grown rotten in the core, the crowd instinctively eats it and destroys it. So Gustav is saying the crowd does operate on instinct? <laughs> Make up your mind, man. His analogy to the people being microbes that eat a dying body is quite an elitist perspective, and he's dehumanizing the people. Right? He doesn't give any premises to back up his assertions, but it's hard to argue either way if he's right or wrong. When a society is crumbling, there is a power vacuum, right? And there's there, there, there's going to be a revolt, perhaps, most likely. But this didn't happen as, as far as we know, at the end of the Bronze Age. I was, you should read about that if you don't know about the Bronze Age. The ending, it's pretty spooky, weird stuff. Those sea people. Otherwise, healthy civilizations that were, they were vastly interconnected. They were attacked by these mysterious sea people 
and uh, those great civilizations were then abandoned. The society that withstood the, the sea people at the end of the Bronze Age the longest was the ancient Egyptians, and they wrote about it. That's how we know. Perhaps the collapse is evidence to support Gustav's claim as the weakened societies were not rebuilt, possibly due to the crowd, but it's baseless supposition, so not really evidence of anything. Gustav writes that all masters of the world's religions or empires, eminent states per, uh, states, states persons, statesmen, uh, and mere chiefs of small groups have always been unconscious psychologists possessed by an instinctive and often very sure knowledge of the character of crowds. And it is their accurate knowledge of this character that has enabled them to establish their mastery. Citations needed. It's plausible that masters of religions, empires, eminent statesmen, and mere chiefs have an instinctive knowledge of the character of crowds, but perhaps they are masters due to some other manifestation of their characters that they had innately, that the crowd responded to, a confidence, an intelligence, a temperament that suited the zeitgeist of the day. Who knows? How would you even study that? This reminds me of a story a friend of a friend told me. I was traveling with a buddy from El Salvador, and uh, he had friends living in Quebec who were uh, in the Civil War in El Salvador, but they'd also been to Cuba. They told me all kinds of harrowing war stories, uh, but also one about Castro. And uh, there was a crowd marching, apparently, against Castro, so he showed up to the head of the crowd. He stood on top of a truck and gave a speech to the mob, and at the end, they were chanting for Castro. <laughs> you know, my, my buddy and his, and his friends were, were laughing at Castro's instinctive or innate control over the crowd. But I doubt it's so simple as that. Castro knew what they were upset about, uh, what they what they cared about, and then maybe his instinctive or perhaps learned control uh, over the crowd played a part. I don't know. But uh, Gustav writes a similar bit about Napoleon being able to understand the psychology of French crowds, but not those of the Spanish or Russian crowds, as they are a different culture and have different behaviors and values or maybe different wants and needs, right? Maybe they, they have enough food and they need something else, right? Whereas maybe somebody else, they don't have enough food, right? So it depends on the priorities, right? So Laban is a little bit more race-based as elites tend to be, but his interpretations seem somewhat valid if you transpose his racist rhetoric to the culture of nations and genetic disposition of the individual. Uh, here's where it gets juicy. Uh, LeBon writes that laws and institutions don't have much influence on the crowd and that they are powerless to hold any opinions other than those which are imposed upon them. <laughs> uh, sounds like people that, you know, we we hear that uh, regurgitate the news, right? They are the powerless to hold any opinions <laughs> other than those which are imposed on them and that it is not with rules based on theories of pure equity. Quite a woke term for 1895. So 
laws are based on a nation's values. So it is plausible that appealing to their value would make an impression. Laban mentions how a lump sum tax of a little amount would be, re- would be rebelled against by the masses, where a subtle larger tax taken incrementally would pass unnoticed by the crowd because it requires an amount of foresight which the masses are incapable of. Here Gustav is clearly, clearly not talking about the crowd as a mass gathering with a single mind, as he defines it, but an elitist perspective on the people being stupid. So here he conflates again, the people and the crowd. Right, so the people here he's saying are too stupid and not capable of grasping what is best for them. So it sounds a bit like he's joking, right? He's doing a little tongue-in-cheek here. Is it his prejudiced view of the people, right? Or is it a joke, right? Is, is, it, is it meant to be like uh, hyperbole? Uh, perhaps he was writing for an audience of elitists. Perhaps he assumed that no one from the populace would read his book or consider themselves part of the populace, or maybe this is a form of conditioning to make people to not want to be part of the populace and try to be of the people and try to be of the uh, the elites. Oh, I'm not part of the people. Blah, 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 blah. I'm an elitist. Blah, 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 blah. Right. Or capable of being able to read anything at all. <laughs> right? Maybe he thinks the masses are just too incapable of even reading. Right. They're illiterate. Which reminds me of some politics. Uh, my father explained to me when I was a kid about uh, Canadian tax and stupid voters. Now, Canadians, I mean, if you needed to look at a Gustavian crowd of idiots, Canadians are fucking ripe. Um, uh, it was 1979. uh Gas was sold in Canada by the gallon. Uh, The new Prime Minister, Joe Clark, put a tax of 18 cents per gallon, which is equivalent to like four cents a liter. And people revolted, right? And they kicked him out of office by a no-confidence vote. Oddly enough, spearheading, spearheaded by the tax-loving pinko Bob Ray of the the far-left New Democratic Party. (laughs) Right? So this commie, right spearheaded a non-confidence vote to get rid of a guy who raised taxes, <laughs> gasoline, right? The NDP spearheaded that because they didn't want an increase in gasoline of four cents a liter or 18 cents a gallon. So the, the idiot, uh, Trudeau's father, uh, Pierre Trudeau won the next election and put an even higher tax but since it was now expressed in leaders, the idiot Canadian voters were duped because they were too stupid. Uh, eight cents a liter sounds like less than 18 cents a gallon, even though eight cents a liter is twice as much as 18 cents a gallon. So <laughs> I, I'll never forget that as a kid. My dad explaining this to me because it was at the time and he's like how stupid are you know canadian voters so i don't remember the exact numbers if those are the exact numbers I'm, i don't think they are but it was it was along those lines anyways the whole you know uh cents per liter cents per gallon you know the pinkos voting out a guy for a, like it just idiot people idiot canadian voters are stupid they've always been stupid the fact that they vote in pierre trudeau well it's sad I mean, second time, third time, this is insanity. Anyways, uh, so there is some uh, truth with Gustav's claim. Idiot voters, at least Canadians, are as stupid as Gustav's crowd. Gustav wrote how Napoleon understood 
this concept. But the politicians of Laban's day were clueless idiots who did not. They were all guilty of making the odd, unfounded assertion. But uh, we're all guilty of making the odd, unfounded assertion. But Gustav makes a lot. He wrote, men never shape their conduct upon the teaching of pure reason. Notice he says men, not even the people, not the crowd. He's just pluralizing men. Does he mean men as in the crowd? This is an obvious gross overgeneralization. Something as common as designing a electronic circuit or coding is conducted based on pure reason and conducted by men. <laughs> right. So now he, I'm sure he's, who know, back in the day, right? Men and women, right? He was just saying men as in mankind, I'm assuming. I'm at the time interpreting it, right? Although women didn't really participate much, I don't think, back in the day when it came to logic and reason. <laughs> uh, I'm I'm not sold on on I'm not sold on Gustav's duality of the consciousness of the individual and the consciousness of the crowd. I get people can be irrational and behave differently in crowds. Individuals behave differently in many settings, at a funeral, at a wedding, on your couch on a Saturday morning, but Laban is claiming that men never base their conduct on reason. Never, which is bullshit, because if no one ever did, then reason would not exist. <laughs> he's not claiming individuals understand reason, but don't base their actions on it because he says the crowd can turn towards, can turn cowards into heroes and honest men into, credi uh, into criminals. It's a subtle thing, but honestly, it is not the opposite of, of criminality, right? Uh, the opposite of honesty is dishonesty. The opposite of criminality is law-abiding. Uh, a law might be unjust, and an honest man would not follow it. This does not make him dishonest. It just means he broke an unjust law created by other men. This is how nations exist. The, the values of people align with the laws. When that breaks down, either the changing values or changing laws, there is conflict until the laws are changed to be in line with the values of the people. Gustav gives a detailed description of what he means by the crowd. He writes, and I'm paraphrasing, a large number of people does not suffice to form a crowd. There are special characteristics of psychological crowds. The turning in a fixed direction of the ideas and sentiments of individuals composing such a crowd and the disappearance of their personality. The disappearance of their personality. The crowd is always dominated by considerations of which it is unconscious. The disappearance of brain activity and the predominance of medullar activity. <laughs> right? So, uh, is he joking? I mean, it's kind of funny, right? Medullar means the inner part, right? He probably means the, the reptilian brain of the medulla oblongata, you know, the core of our brain. What is surprising is that they could actually measure the brain's activity in the 1880s, you know, a decade before uh, Gustav wrote the crowd. He continues, um, 
the lowering of the intelligence and the complete transformation of the sentiments. The transformed sentiments may be better or worse than those of the individuals of which the crowd is composed. A crowd is as easily heroic as criminal. <laughs> the lowering of intelligence, right? But the complete transformation of sentiments. So what you emotionally, right? Again, no citations or evidence to approve, to prove, to approve, to prove his assertions, right? So he's talking about <clears throat> when all the, the desperate, the, the, the different, separate, desperate, not disparate, not, not desperate, disparate, disparate. People in a group unite in a collective conscious, you know, and, and their individual personality vanishes. Sounds pretty spooky. And I've seen some pretty spooky behavior uh, by people who couldn't deal with what was going on at the time. I mean, and it's plausible that this may happen to the right crowd in the right circumstances where the mass of the crowd behave that way as well. But, you know, as a bouncer in college, I've pulled violent drunks you know, out of a crowd and talk them down to the point where they commonly walk out of the bar. You know, they, they, they walk, walk out of the bar. But, uh, you know, were these drunks experiencing this crowd mind that Gustav is talking about? Well, maybe not. But then at times he conflates it and says it's just a people or just men, right? The people. Gustav says his, uh, this collective mind is temporary. So now he's saying it's temporary and presents a very clearly defined characteristic the collective mind he also calls an organ uh, an organized crowd or a psychological crowd so the collective mind aka organized crowd aka psychological crowd so when he means organized he doesn't mean organized by somebody else i'm assuming that's how i'm interpreting it it's just an organized a self-organizing crowd this mentality collective mind self-organizing in a crowd like a meme, right? So it's not about the mass of people. It's about when a mass of people change into a temporary hive mind and the individuals lose their personalities. Now, before and after, like he, he changes his definitions, right? So uh, you'll, you'll see. Anyway, Luban, Luban has not won me over, you know, with his assertions, with no evidence and his changing definitions. So here he's saying the crowd is a temporary hive mind of a group of people, right? Earlier on, it was just the people, right? But we've all been uh, in crowds where there's weird energy. So I'm still open to the possibility of this temporary uh, hive mind appearing. I, I can't refute it. I don't know that it doesn't exist. Uh, maybe it does. If anything, my experience indicates to me that crowds become docile. Of course, there are violent crowds. We've all seen footage of BLM and Antifa violence. I think there are a few radicals who think the crowd may be supporting them. So those individuals behave differently or lose inhibitions. And uh, that may cause mimicking, you know. And mimicking is a bizarre but actual behavior we do see. Uh, but mimicking doesn't mean those individuals lose their personalities and become that which what they are mimicking. Might be semantics. Maybe uh, what Gustav says is true. We should be, uh, if it is, we should be able to create this crowd in a social experiment. But the only thing that uh, comes up today is, you know, the crowdsourcing, which is not a collective singular mind Gustav is talking about where the individuals lose their personality. It's a bunch of people who 
already agree on something and then they like minds, you know, support something. So it's they, their, their minds aren't created by, you know, this mass of, or external events or whatever. They are already a bunch of different people who all think red. So that all the red people collect, right? So that's, so is mass hysteria, mass hysteria or mass uh, psychosis, a form of this crowd hive mind, uh, you know, the Gustav is talking about a crowd of people being irrational or delusional. There is some overlap of concept, but what are the causes and differences and effects? Mass hysteria can include symptoms of phantom illnesses. Gustav mentions nothing of this, right? So he's talking about a different phenomena, if it exists at all. Is it a phenomenon? Which one's plural? Though it appears that a strong emotional response is a trigger for mass hysteria, mass psychosis, and Gustav's hive mind. But it may not be. I don't know. It just appears that way, right? It could be other uh, causes. I, I heard it argue that people do become a hive mind, like at sporting events where the crowd all cheers simultaneously, but they are cheering simultaneously because of a definite cause, like a goal or a foul, not because they are a hive mind that spontaneously all cheers at the same, right, with no <laughs> cause. But this doesn't mean that a hive mind does not occur. It might but that's not evidence of it or proof, it's, 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 right? He says the collective mind won't simultaneously form in any assembly. There needs to be an influence and the setting has to be right. So here he's saying it's a very specific thing, right? This is not all people, not all crowds, which later on he does say, or earlier on he also says, you know, the people in his elitist attitudes. But here he's specifically saying it doesn't uh, spontaneously form in any assembly it has to be uh, the right influence and the setting has to be right also the numbers are not important he says it could be a small group or it could be a nation it is triggered by feelings or violent emotions if influencing thought so the nature and intensity of the exciting cause varies the characteristics of the collective mind the bond claims all humans vary in character depending on the environment that they are in. Well, change the setting, change the character. Hmm. This depends on how one defines character. You know, I, people behave differently in, you know, fancy restaurants than they do in fast food joints, but their character is not changed. Their behavior is. Now, if one defines character as behavior, then you could conflate the two, but Again, going to buckets, I think there's a nuance here that is being overlooked. I differentiate between behavior and character and frame character as the collection of your different behaviors, your collection of behaviors. Behaviors often change, but character does not. Your character is your assemblage of all your previous behaviors. Right? I'll say the archetype of your character is defined by the stereotype of your behavior. <laughs> right? That's pretty good. The The archetype of your character is defined by the stereotype of your behavior. Paul Mill. <laughs> Gustav refers to the violent and savage French National Convention, 
the French Revolution was was very violent. And they chopped a lot of heads off, right? And and different new governments turned on recent new ones. It was it was all very violent. La Guillotine, the Bastille, right? Anyway, Gustav wrote about how after the storm had passed, these uh, these once violent, bloodthirsty murderers resumed their normal character of quiet, law-abiding citizens. And Napoleon found among them this group, his most docile servants. <laughs> it should be obvious to all that Gustav is using a simplex, uh, simplistic interpretation where he overgeneralizes and simplifies complex people and events into Tupperware. <laughs> people are complex. We can be violent and we can be peaceful. People who are pushed by tyrannical governments may justifiably chop the heads off the arrogant elites who are oppressing them. After they remove the evil scum, they would most likely return to their docile behaviors, right? You remove the, the, the cause and the, uh, the behavior returns to the normal, right? The, the, it's not rocket science, Gustav. I mean, these, these oversights on his part push me closer to believing that his objective uh, with the book is to smear the populace, you know, just to push elitism. I don't know. Can he be that ignorant? Ignorant? Laban claims that there are different degrees of how much the collective mind has taken hold, which makes sense. It probably wouldn't be binary, on off, or digital. It would probably be analog, certain percentage of manifestation, if it exists at all. Perhaps not everyone affected, or not everyone affected to the same degree. Gustav refers to this as successive degrees of organization of crowds. Reasonably, Laban wants to focus on the phase of the complete organization or the complete hive mind, 100% collective mind. So he's saying there are crowds, some are you know, maybe 10% hive mind, some are 30% hive mind, some are 100% hive mind, hmm. with no evidence or proof. He claims... Uh, at the phase of 100%, there are new and special characteristics that are superimposed on the character of the individuals. The turning of all feelings and thoughts of the collective mind in identical direction. So it is, he's saying it is literally a hive mind. Now, I can't remember if he used the word hive mind at all. I don't think he did. But that's the, the concept. There is no uh, evidence that the crowd mind is a singular collective mind as opposed to many individuals who are experiencing a similar event and similar triggers, but uniquely. I guess uh, stand-up comedians and other performers can get a crowd to think and feel similar things at the same time, uh, but it's, it's more than that, according to Gustav. Gustav claims the individual's personality is replaced, so what? you would find funny is now different, right? Your personality has been changed. It's replaced. So he claims it doesn't matter the individual's occupation, character, or intelligence. They all act in a new collective way. A heterogeneous crowd transforms into a homogenous collective being. Is it homogenous or homo homogeneous? It's spelled homogeneous, but everybody says homogenous. Anyways, so he's saying a heterogeneous crowd transforms into a homogenous collective being. 
Well, it's been over 125 years since he wrote that, and there's still no proof that I'm aware of to confirm any of these assertions. Maybe in some CIA lab where they study people. Maybe, I don't know. Uh, I see people referring to him as proof. Laban says this, therefore it's true, right? That's that's not proof. Just because some idiot wrote it down and claims it is not proof, right? It's 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 uh it's evidence, maybe weak evidence, but you know somebody's saying something, right? It's uh, doesn't mean it's good evidence. Could be shit evidence, right? Just because some idiot asserts something doesn't make it true. According to Gustav, it's not a summing up or average of the individual's characters. So if you're thinking that, according to Gustav, you're wrong. His definition is not the average of, so if you got a bunch of university professors in, you know, whatever field, it's not an average of what they believe. It's an entirely new thing. So it doesn't matter if you put them in with a bunch of other people, you know, who might be smarter than them. <laughs> it's the, uh, it's a new thing. It's not a summing up or an average of the individual's characters. According to Gustav, it's a brand new mind, very different from any of the individual's minds. Now, I don't know. Is there an individual that might have that same similar mind? According to Gustav, it's different than all our minds. He says you can observe one individual who forms part of the collective mind and mark how different they are from when they are isolated but it's difficult to isolate the causes of the difference. Gustav's claiming causation based on random assumptions using a random hypothetical example is not in any way proof or even evidence. I guess technically it's evidence, but it's not really evidence, right? It's not, it's not good evidence. Freud was an idiot, and Laban was a great influence on him because he focused so much on the subconscious or unconscious. I think that it's debunked that the majority of our actions are due to our subconscious. I'm not talking about blood pressure, heart rate, or digestion. I'm referring to our actions, but it may not be. I don't know. We definitely have instincts at different phases of our lives. And, uh, you know, family when we're young, uh, you know, your pack of friends when you're a little older and pairing off to start your own families when you're even older than that, right? That's, you know, the maturing from childhood to adulthood, right? Not everyone follows this, but we definitely have a the instinct for reproduction. And these are these instincts are independent of our occupation or intelligence, but not independent of our character. And, uh, or gender. God, I saw this stupid, what was it, uh, The New Matrix. She says, oh, I, 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 I remember I wanted to have children, but I think I was conditioned to have children because I'm a woman. What, men don't have kids too? Like, I get that men don't give birth, right? But, you know, parents, right? It's not just women, right? Dummies. Laban argues that in this uh, common consciousness, our instincts that take over in a collective mind are the reason why the crowd is so dumb because it's, it's our instincts don't include higher learning and reasoning. And he says, so neither too does the collective mind that is operating on instinct, right? So it's like the lowest common denominator of consciousness, but he said also it's not instinct and it is not an average or a lowest common denominator. Oh, self 
right? Refuting. Um, again, this is not how, you know, instincts work. Instincts are like an executive order and our higher learning and reasoning try to find reasons to implement those instincts, if you think about it, right? So Gustav, if you wanted to migrate, right, you have this instinct to go to Mexico, right? Then your conscious brain tries to find you know, solutions to get you to Mexico because you have this desire to go to Mexico because that desire is your instinct if you're a moth or, or butterfly or whatever, whoever the hell flies to Mexico. So Gustav claims this is why a crowd of intelligent people with different specialities become a crowd of imbeciles. So they, they're operating on instinct, which is a non sequitur. There is no proof of a crowd even becoming imbeciles, never mind a connection between that assertion and the loss of their higher mental faculties. Now, we've seen people, again, right? We kind of want to believe what he's saying, right? Because, right? I don't know why. Why do we want to believe it? Because it sounds kind of funny. It's it's like, it's, yeah, I have a, you know, people are idiots. The crowd are idiots, right? It's all this, right? But we, uh, we might assume that the crowd uh, might act based on the, uh, the lowest common denominator out of fear of the individual, you know, uh, their, their beliefs from retaliation from the mob. But Laban claims it is not an average of the crowd's intelligence or even the lowest common denominator. It's a completely new character that may be more benevolent or it may be more malevolent than the average individual of the crowd. So it's not one person changing their personality to suit the crowd out of fear of retaliation of the crowd singling them out. Gustav's saying specifically, it's not that. By Gustav's logic, any halfway smart person has more intelligence than a crowd. He claims the external causes that determine the characteristics of the crowd are not the characteristics possessed by the isolated individuals. So if Gustav is right, any crowd can be turned into the same mob based on the external causes. I could see why Hitler was so interested in this book. If you could turn any crowd into... Um, you know, the you control it, right? The first cause is that because individuals are in a mass, they acquire a feeling of in, uh, invincible power, which taps into instincts he normally would keep under restraint. Now they get a feeling of uh, anonymity and uh, and feel unaccountable and irresponsible responsibility which normally controls people disappears completely according to Gustav the second cause is a bizarre one he calls contagion it's essentially monkey see monkey do mimicry but again it's not that easy to explain he thinks it's something to do with hypnosis so you're going to be careful about how we interpret things right? what he's saying don't jump to conclusions about what he's claiming listen to how he further defines things and you're like whoa <laughs> He claims in a crowd every act and sentiment is contagious to a, such a degree that the individual sacrifices their personal interests to the collective interest, which is contrary to our nature, which is rarely seen outside the crowd. The third cause of the collective mind of the crowd is suggestibility. He doesn't mean just being suggestible. He means total and absolute control of the individual in the crowd. Not saying, hey man, I feel like a hamburger. Let's go eat hamburgers. No, he's saying absolute control of the individual. 
Gustav doesn't know the exact mechanism, but he claims the target is in a state that resembles fascination and is completely under control of the hypnotizer. So now he's introduced a hypnotizer. <laughs> Who's this manipulator? Who's this hypnotizer? A minute ago, a crowd was feeding energy, you know, from the crowd. Hmm. Gustav. The ability of the brain being paralyzed. So here I'm going to quote him here. The ability of the activity of the brain being paralyzed. He becomes the slave of all the unconscious activities of his spinal cord, which the hypnotizer directs at will. The unconscious, no, the conscious personality has entirely vanished. And will and discernment are lost. I'm going to read that again. This is Gustav. The activity of the brain being paralyzed, he becomes a slave of all the unconscious activities of his spinal cord, which the hypnotizer directs at will. So the hypnotizer is bypassing the logic and reason, and this person is operating at an unconscious level. There are desires and behaviors and activities by this hypnotizer. The conscious personality has entirely vanished. So these people, will and discernment are lost. So these people are turned into zombies, spineless puppet zombies that are controlled by some hypnotizer now, right? So this, this really sounds like hyperbole uh, by an elitist against the populace, right? So he's referring to the crowd as this, right? Being the crowd, the people, right? Populists their brain are, are being paralyzed, right? And they're the slave of their, the, the spinal cords being manipulated by some hypnotizer, right? Well, if that's the case, any adverse actions by the crowd are the responsibility of the hypnotizer. And if the hypnotizer is part of the elite, then any, you know, ill effects from the crowd are the responsibility of the elite. The elite person who controlled them is the person who caused the effects of the crowds, misbehavior, right? according to Gustav, which is not what he's saying. I'm just, you know, in interpreting that. I, you know, I've been in, again, many crowds, and I've never experienced this phantom crowd that Gustav claims exists. I've never seen a bunch of zombies all controlled by, well, maybe at a concert, and I think, you know, the, the, no, they're not mindless zombies, or, the, you know, the musicians up there chanting something, you know, I've, I've never seen them become zombies, right? So, Gustav, uh, writes certain faculties are destroyed while others may be brought to exaltation so mental faculties right so some faculties are destroyed while others may be brought to exaltation exaltation means elevated or inflated exalted my my faculties are exalted <laughs> and these targets can be made to do acts quickly with little or no thought on mass, hmm. a voice of reason would have a hard time against the wave of the crowd, but if they evoke happy emotional images, they have been able to stop bloodthirsty crowds, according to Lamont. Huh, interesting, eh? So a voice of reason has a hard time against a lot of people today, judging from what they believe in the press. You can say things, and it's it's. I mean, we see a lot of this behavior. And brainwash people, 
well, almost everybody who can be brainwashed about certain things, right? Specific. It's very funny. It's not their entire, it's just very specific topics. So if he's right, it's spooky that humans can be turned into unthinking robots with their personalities temporarily removed simply by being in a crowd with suggestion, contagious, uh, contagion, and impetuous acts. Impetuous. With primitive enthusiasm for spontaneous, ferocious violence. <laughs> Well, you know, the defense is to not allow yourself to be impressed with words and images while in a crowd. They have a minimal to no effect on an isolated individual, apparently. So if you're sitting by yourself and you're listening to this podcast, apparently I have no effect to brainwash you. I cannot brainwash you. So you have nothing to worry about. But again, I have to call bullshit. There's no proof to his claims. Laban writes that this mentality is present in juries as well as governments. Anywhere there is a group of people. So now the mentality exists anywhere there's a group of people. So before it was very specific and ooh, now it's any crowd of people. This, this exists. All right. He didn't say possible. He said present. I will use the principle of charity and assume he meant it can be present. He's probably exaggerating for sarcastic effect. I don't know. He claims the key cause to create the crowd is emotional provocation, which we know today emotional, well, apparently emotional uh, um, appeals to emotion bypasses people's reasoning, right? Laban writes that it is possible to transform people who are in the crowd uh, to change a skeptic into a believer the honest man into a criminal and the coward into a hero. These being temporary changes. Where's the evidence, Gustav? What's your evidence? The power is just a benign tool, according to Gustav. It can be used for both good or evil, depending on the nature of the suggestions. It appears that the power of suggestion works sometimes on some people, as well as mimicking, but there's no evidence people's personalities are diametrically changed temporarily even some might be pressured to do something we wouldn't want to do but that is you know part of conditioning it doesn't immediately change one's personality so he thinks people need to be worked up in a crowd to achieve great things as well as horrible things it sounds a lot like Gustav's tool of the crowd is essentially the coach's prep talk uh, to the team the halftime talk right Gustav says the uh, that premeditation is absent from the crowd. Premeditation is absent from the crowd. Based on what? If there's a puppet master... Or, 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 I lost my microphone. If there's a puppet master or a, uh, a manipulator, what did he call him? The, uh, I don't know, the person in control there. There can be premeditation. <laughs> he writes, the images evoked in the mind of crowds... Uh, are accepted to them as reality. So all you need to do is evoke imagery, mental imagery in the people, in the crowd, in the Gustavian crowd, and they take it as reality. Again, it's just an assertion, a stereotypical generalization with no proof. But we've all seen people, how they respond to politics and news. <laughs> Sometimes they believe bullshit as reality. Right. 
Does that make them not know what's real? Well, yeah, they don't know what's real. If they, if what they know, what they think they know is wrong, then clearly they don't know what's real, right? So they're out of touch with reality. I've heard politicians say perception is reality. So they believe that people are not critical thinkers and believe whatever image is evoked in their minds. Perception is reality is the mantra, the mantra, the mantra, the mantra, the, the mantra of the manipulator. They don't want the target to think of the word illusion that puts a, a wrench in their spell, right? They, they don't want you even contemplating the, the, the concept of, of illusion or, or, you know, manipulation, right? An enlightening bit of Gustav's writing is that he, when he wrote, uh, there are characteristics of the crowd, such as impulsiveness, irritability, incapacity to reason, the absence of judgment and of the critical spirit and the exaggeration of the sentiments which are almost always observed in beings belonging to inferior forms of evolution. <laughs> I'll paraphrase or reword uh, what he said to people who are more emotional than critical uh, and logical. <laughs> Gustav was a bit of a racist and a sexist or... You know, he may be a, uh, been a man of his times, but that doesn't excuse his thinking in stereotype or overgeneralizations, which is so prevalent in far left groups today. I think people as a whole evolve socially or, or at least change. You know, there's a zeitgeist and, you know, generalization groups, probabilities, right? You get the, what people may have been, uh, what may have been a powerful influence on the, uh, the, the naive person of the past may not work at all on a modern man. We don't find some old shows we enjoy, uh, we enjoyed as enjoyable anymore as a, as a society, right? Gustav, you know, young people won't watch a movie that other people their age years ago would have found enjoyable because the society's evolved. Right. Gustav writes that the mind of the crowd is like leaves in the wind. <laughs> this is, <laughs> oh, this sounds like uh, the elite's hate of populism. The crowd's mind are like leaves in the wind, whoosh, scattered. Right. What he calls uh, he calls that that variability mobility, and he writes that the mobility of crowds of their minds renders them very difficult to govern, especially when a measure of public authority has fallen into their hands. Well, now we start to, again, ring a little true here, right? When you, you get a, a measure to the tiny bit of public authority, you, you give somebody a vest and, and wands and all of a sudden, you know, they're <laughs> Hitler, right? This, this is explicitly arguing that no power should be given to the people because they are difficult to govern. This implies that there's another group who want to govern the people and it makes this other group more qualified. You know, what, 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 what makes this other group more qualified, you know, or even necessary or that the, the crowd need someone to govern them, right? This is, this is very, uh, a very statist statist perspective, a perspective of centralized control. Someone must be in control, which is, you know, never a good thing, you know, especially on a societal level. He thinks the will of the crowd 
is frenzied, but does not last for long. And crowds are incapable of thinking for any length of time. <laughs> so this is a bizarre model of a crowd that is elusive as Bigfoot. Right? He writes, the crowd acts like a less evolved form of life, not prepared to admit anything can come between its desire and the realization of that desire. And it feels irresistible power due to the numerical strength an individual knows he can just set fire to a palace or loot a shop. <laughs> but acting as a lower form of life, the crowd has no problem burning or looting and worse, murder or rape. Any unexpected obstacles will be met with a frenzied rage. Gustave Le Bon is describing Antifa and BLM riots of today. The mobs are acting as a lesser evolved form of life, savage and stupid. Are these people changed by this crowd? I say no. I say when they go home, they still have the same uh, attitudes, right? It's not temporary. We have no evidence that the looters aren't just scumbag opportunists and the arsonists would never think of such a thing individually. The reality is that these people do prepare. They bring weapons. They bring Molotov cocktails. They aren't created or changed by the crowd. They are what we see. Laban says crowds vary in temperament, in irritability, and impulsiveness. Well, again, maybe these crowds that I'm referring to aren't Gustavian crowds, right? They're just mobs, riotous mobs. So there's this cliff in Italy. It's uh, about 80 feet uh, tall where the Romans threw people off to be executed. And it's called the Tarpeian Rock. And uh, the Romans had an expression, uh, Arx Tarpea Capitoli Proxima, which means the Tarpeian Rock is close to the capital, which means a politician's fall from grace can come quickly if a politician screws up you know, over the Tarpan rock they go, right? Their fall from grace. <laughs> Gustav writes that the, the crowds are very emotional, unstable, and quick to change their collective mind. So now their minds change quickly. So whoever controls the crowd might achieve a lofty destiny, but they are always skirting the brink of the Tarpan rock with the certainty of one day being tossed from its lofty heights. So, again, the def Gustav's definition of the crowd now is it's a mob. It's controlled by somebody, right? So crowd manipulators have your, uh, you have fair warning. If crowds can be controlled, and this one type of magic crowd that uh, Gustav has created, right? If, if <laughs> you may be thrown. So if you have any, you know, reasoning or evidence or logic against the Gustavian crowd, it, his supporters might just say, well, that's not the type of crowd that Gustav was talking about. Because if you've got evidence against it, then that's not the type of crowd he's, right? So it's, it's kind of slippery how he's trying to do, change his definitions, right? And not have con consistent definitions, right? So it's, it's a hypothetical crowd sometimes. And anyways, it's very inconsistent. So I'm not saying there aren't ways in which people can be deceived and manipulated to act and behave a certain way. There obviously are. 
I'm saying there's no proof of Gustav's special type of crowd. I'm not saying it doesn't exist. Uh, if it does or if it has existed, it may be or may not be for the reasons that he claims. It just might appear that way if it existed, right? Keep in mind this book is, uh, it might just be an elitist hate manifesto against the people. Perhaps uh, that's why crowds are so often portrayed as stereotyped and stereotyped as the mindless mob, right? We're being fed fairy tales from the elites who hate the people. We've been preconditioned to prejudice a gathering who protests as mindless idiots, right? Very much from the perspective of the status sociopath. You know, I get, I get angry, which is emotional, when I think of the mob burning witches, right? But it wasn't the mob. It was individuals. And those individuals had courts uh, and, and, and were just assholes, right? They, they weren't a temporary hive mind, right? What I mean by the head courts is, I mean, they actually brought the witches to court and found them guilty of being witches. So it wasn't an instinctive emotional outburst where they just happened to burn, just happened to burn a witch, right? These were sociopaths, right? Or psychopaths, I guess. Gustav claims that the ideas uh, that are accessible to crowds and how they conceive them are in two classes. Accidental, passing ideas, and fundamental ideas. His, his accidental ideas are from the moment. Infatuation for an individual or a doctrine. So a doctrine. A doctrine can be from the moment, especially from the uh, diminished mental capacity of the Gustavian crowd. So we have to assume the doctrine was taught earlier. In order to understand a doctrine, they, and they don't have any concept of, you know, they're only operating on their spinal cord, right? So that means they must have been taught this doctrine earlier in order for the crowd to be able to access it if we want to be consistent with Gustav's definitions of what this crowd is. Okay, so I picture some Islamic State nut screaming to, uh, you know, some innocent, you know, cut some innocent person's head off. But I don't think the crowd had anything to do with it. That individual already had that desire and hatred by their doctrine, by their conditioning. So it wasn't a Gustavian crowd where they were, you know, their character was replaced by this person who wants to chop the head off of an innocent person, right? Gustav's second class of ideas uh, that are accessible to the crowd are what he calls the fundamental ideas. He says they are religious ideas of the past and social and democratic ideas of today. So this is the same thing. I'm I'm pretty much just negating the first part. So at least here, you know, they, they could have been, you know, I, ideas from the past. He doesn't say where the ideas come from, but they are environmental, genetic disposition, and public opinion, public opinion give them stability. Gustav never mentions if the, any of the ideas are correct or not. And it appears that the correctness of the ideas are irrelevant to Gustav. He brings back his metaphor of water and uses the fundamental ideas as the body of water flowing and the accidental ideas as the transient waves on the surface. At least his body of water flowing uh, is flowing, which indicates that the fundamentals can change. His model falls apart for anyone who's been to the, uh, well, it changes meaning. I shouldn't say it falls apart, but it changes meaning. If anybody has ever been to the Niagara uh, River Rapids, there's a narrowing of the river where the speed of the water 
uh, is very fast, and the rapids make some static waves. So the waves are not changing, but the body of water is rapidly changing. So it's an inverted model of what he's talking about. So in Gustav's model, the fundamentals are rapidly changing while the accidental ideas are long-lasting. Limits of models, right? We've got to be careful when we use models. Gustav recognized the fundamental ideas of our fathers are tottering more and more. Tottering. That's a word for you. Tottering. This is only true if your father's ideas were dogmatic and did not accept the questioning of things. My father said it was wrong and futile to try to stop progress. He meant the progress to better things, not just different things. And change by progress or change by itself is not progress. It is just change. Gustav laments the majority of ideas of his day will fade away as they lack vitality. Well, then they are probably wrong, right? This is the, the way of things. We all have millions of ideas. A lot are crap. And, you know, via natural selection, they will fade away. And some good ideas, you know, will keep afloat. If, if, if we uh, no, no, no longer need certain ideas, they will be lost. You know, even if they are uh, genius, we don't need them. They're gonna they're gonna disappear, right? Take a look at the skills uh, the craftsmen or, or sailors used to have. You know, the modern world has erased a lot of their genius ideas. That's the the evolution of the species, technology. It's not the evolution of the species; it's the evolution of our modes of doing things, right? We did the species didn't change our behavior changed due to the technology that we invented right so the ideas aren't as important as the ability to come up with them that's what i uh, i define intelligence as the ability to come up with valid ideas not the ability to just you know regurgitate them so in a changing or new environment we that's that's the human superpower apparently right we're adaptable we can change why can we change? Because we can come up with new ideas for our certain situation. But the ability to stand on the shoulders of others' work is a great thrust uh, forward in our collective understanding and some of our of some of our more universal concepts. Did Gustav Laban give anything to society other than assertions that are most probably false? I shouldn't say that. Maybe they're true, but they're not proved. Right? I've been guilty of throwing out you know, all religious ideas because I've come across blatant inconsistencies and garbage in the Bible, as anybody who's critically read it will agree. <laughs> A lot of you know, self-refuting garbage in there, right? So I thought the entire book was compromised and the information is all useless junk. But I w could be wrong, right? Not all ideas or concepts in there are actually junk, right? Just Mao used, uh, just as Mao used some good ideas to lure people in before he hit them with his cult propaganda, there are some good ideas among even the most evil, right? You look at Hitler, for example, he came up with the audio recording technology of, you know, the magnetic tapes, right? Cassette tapes and stuff were real to real probably back then. He came up with multi-lane highways, you know, the rocket technology and many other advances in, in technology, right? So even though we hate and disagree with someone, they may have some good ideas. So 
But Gustav just throws out the baby with the bathwater, the tub, everything. When he wrote Christian ideas, democratic and modern social ideas are all sorry errors. They're all errors. He didn't say they're, he just says they're errors. <laughs> His context uh, was that the low crap ideas are the ones that have impact on the crowd, which is against what he wrote earlier when he said doctrine can have great effect. Well, some doctrines can be very high concept, right? He is again using the logic of a Marxist by, and he would hate that because apparently he doesn't like Marxism, right? By oversimplifying complex things and jamming them into Tupperware, right? Jamming them into boxes, you jam into Tupperware, you try to frame them. In terms of the mechanism to control the crowd, Gustav says ideas must be converted into opinions. Hmm, so now an opinion is a judgment on something. An idea is a concept that may or may not be true. So an opinion on a false idea is a false opinion and not a matter of taste. An idea can be proven or in, uh, induced by overwhelming uh, statistics to make it very plausible which would make the opinion a valid one and not based on irrationality or emotion. But Gustav apparently is not aware of deduction and induction, but he's only aware of abduction, which is best guess logic. There's no reason for a person to be certain when using abductive reasoning. And a critical thinker would know this. Therefore, Gustav is not a critical thinker. Some people use emotions as a basis for their opinions and are quick to judge. These types uh, rarely hold opinions as tentative, you know, until further evidence. <laughs> They're close-minded, right? Quick to anger, quick to judge. All of us can become lazy thinkers and jump to conclusions when we don't have to. Gustav claims that regardless of how much clear and verifiable proof there is for an idea or point that would convince a reasonable person, the convert will quickly return to his original conceptions by his unconscious self, the same way a crowd cannot be convinced of certain things. While it is true many people cannot be convinced and are very close-minded, I'm not sure the crowd has any effect on that. Yet, Gustav says, their personality and characteristics can change, so, right? Gustav uh, claims when an idea has penetrated the crowd's mind, it possesses an irresistible power which has no opposition. I don't see the existence of the crowd causing any of this i have no evidence that an open-minded person will become a closed-minded one just because they're in a crowd he gets loose in his definitions although we got to be careful because a lot of i've got a buddy who's open-minded knows all the fallacies and that guy is uh sometimes does not think critically right just because he knows about it and he can do it sometimes doesn't mean he always does same with all of us just because we know about it doesn't mean we always use it. <laughs> so, yeah, Gustav gets loose in his definition of the crowd again when he claims it takes 100 years to implant an idea like the French Revolution. I call bullshit. 
it takes starving people to create a revolution. Gustav claims the ideas accepted by the crowd are several generations behind learned men and philosophers. So a crowd is a temporary collective consciousness that can only accept ideas that are several generations behind learned men, but it can, it can accept a doctrine. <laughs> what about a doctrine that is taught by learned men? I don't know. His logic falls apart. He's really, he, he, he feels like it feels like he's being hyperbolic and he just hates the people, uh, with an elitist's hatred. I can imagine all the pompous twits of the day throat chortling over, uh, this book <laughs> while they'll sip their tea, <laughs> an echo chamber of the elitist hatred towards the people circa 1895. Who would, uh, who would get published? in 1895, right? Bring your book to the publisher who, what type of person would get published? It's probably an elitist throat chortler. Gustav writes that the crowd can reason. Now they can reason just at an inferior level. He writes the arguments the crowd employs and those which are capable of influencing them are from a logical view of such an inferior kind that it is only by way of analogy that they can be described as reasoning. <laughs> Holy shit. This is rich coming from a guy who uses no premises and argues by assertion. But that may be because he's French. <laughs> so Gustav claims reasoning is based on associations of ideas, which is wrong. Simply associating ideas, combining and mixing them around does not produce valid reasoning. Maybe this is how Gustav reasons. Today, we reason with deduction, with its proofs, induction, with its statistics, and most probable conclusions and abduction with its best guesses based on incomplete information. Just associating ideas is not valid reasoning. Clouds float, balloons float, therefore balloons are clouds. That's associating ideas and it's not valid. But when we enter the realm of reasoning, we go down the rabbit hole of consciousness and mind and it's currently black magic. We don't really know what's going on at the core. Reasoning uses association, but that is an incomplete model. Just placing ideas adjacent is not reasoning. It's geometry of concepts. The magic is the meaning we infer from those juxtapositions. But this is the result, not the mechanism. The inference is still partially black magic. Where do new ideas come from? That's currently beyond our grasp. It's interesting that realization means it becomes real in our minds and can be shared in objective reality. It pops into existence like the word insight sounds like it comes from seeing within Gustav refers to inferior reasoning of different races as well as women. <laughs> so he, he refers to Eskimos of his day thinking glass is ice as inferior reasoning. If this is even true, under what context? 
This is not inferior reasoning. It is reasoning that has evolved to survive an environment of ice, the harshest environment on the planet. Put Laban in the Arctic with nothing and see who has inferior reasoning. I'm sure after two minutes of handling it, the Eskimos understood that this new substance to them, glass, is not ice. I've been to the Arctic. I've worked with Eskimos. They told me they preferred to be called Eskimos. And I tell you, they certainly understood what glass is, and they knew it was not ice. Gustav also refers to a savage that eats the heart of his enemy, thinking they gain their bravery. While the transfer of bravery from eating your enemy's heart has not been scientifically verified, as far as I know, I'm sure eating a heart is very nutritional and results in the eater's greater chances of survival for believing that and eating it. So while the reasoning may be superstitious, the result is a greater probability of survival, and that ultimately is the reason for reason. Gustav's third example of inferior reasoning is a workman who is exploited by one employer and believes all employers are exploiters. Well, this depends on how one defines exploit. Well, maybe he's also referring to him just generalizing, you know, stereotyping all employers based on one employer. But sure, all employers leverage employees. That's what makes them, you know, viable, the employees. It's not a bad thing as the employees willingly exchange their time and effort for money. It's not slavery. This is the logic of stereotype and what Gustav himself used many times in this book. Also, he's implying that all Eskimos are his magic crowd. Is that what he's saying? Or all savages, however he defines that. Or all workers. They're all monolithic. So he's, stereo he's using the very logic that he's crapping on about. His perspective is very much of the elitist who stereotypes and resents the people. Ideas, humans, and businesses are all controlled by natural selection. Some are parasites that not only harm, but still manage to survive, while others are neutral and still others are beneficial. Gustav claims the crowd make connections that aren't there between two things. This is what I call the phantom connections. I covered that in, a, in a, um, an earlier podcast. Phantom connections can happen to all of us, but when connections are intentionally claimed that do not exist, we've entered the world of the Canadian journalist. <laughs> what I just said there about Canadian journalists is what I think Gustav was doing a lot in this book. He was being hyperbolic, perhaps, joking. And most jokes are based on observations. Regardless, Gustav's interpretations feel childish and antiquated at times. Now, Gustav claims that phantom connections are intentionally used by the manipulator, which is plausible as the manipulator would want their target to believe something which appears to be true, but is in fact not true. Deceived with a false connection. But Gustav goes a step too far in claiming the crowd uh, is incapable of grasping a logical argument. Uh, 
Of course, there's a lot of non-critical thinkers out there, and we all can be duped by phantom connections which appear to be true but are false. This is used all the time in legacy news propaganda. But being incapable of grasping a logical argument, I only see that when someone is a close-minded idiot or someone who is deluded, which, or both. I've come across it often with religious people when arguing about religion, but I've also come across it with other types of leftist ideologues or any kind of ideological person. And I'm not saying that a religious person is incapable of grasping a logical argument or that all religious people are the same. Just one that goes against their dogmatic beliefs, whatever they've been conditioned to believe. When people are programmed by fear, they are resilient to logical arguments, but not impervious. We can break free from whatever cult some manipulator is trying to indoctrinate us into. But Laban's short-term, emotionally charged, hive-minded crowd is incapable. Okay. No proof, but okay. There may be some general truths of probability in Gustav's assertions. He's implying that it's the short graphic meme which has more influence over the crowd than rational words. That appears to be true, but it's not an absolute. Some people in some circumstance may ignore graphic memes and be influenced by a long-form rational critique. He goes against what he wrote earlier when he says judgments accepted by the crowds are merely judgments forced upon them and never judgments adopted after discussion. His extremes, again, make me think he's being hyperbolic and joking, but I'm not sure. Either way, he earlier claimed that the crowd is uncontrollable and can only appear if the conditions are right. Now he's claiming their opinions are merely forced on them and never opinions after discussion. So they, they, they never adopt them after discussion. So this is what the legacy media does today. They force opinions on the idiot public, but it is not absolute. It works on some, but not all. It works on the non-critical sheeple, but not the critical thinker. If they're being critical, if they're applying their critical thinking, <laughs> just because you're a critical thinker doesn't mean you can't be duped. You need to be keep using it, right? In order to, and even then, his observation might have some merit, but only on his special version of the crowd. The hive mind are merely idiots who believe what the news media and politicians say, if that's what he's saying. In which case, he's not spewing hate of the people in general, but a subsect of the people, the, the idiots who believe the news. But perhaps... He does not differentiate. He thinks everyone are the people who believe. He thinks everyone believes the news, which they don't. Obviously, there's people who, there's maybe it's a small percentage of people, I don't know, who don't believe the news. He says it's a temporary emotional state, is his crowd. But the people that believe the news don't have their personalities transformed only to have them return to normal after they watch the news. 
that I'm aware of. Uh, so this is an ongoing state, a, uh, a static crowd, a chronic torture of the people's free will. In 1895, Bayer Pharmaceutical pushed dicetylmorphine, also known as heroin, as a cure, a safe and effective. Our experts will tell you it's safe and effective. At least they weren't forcing on people. But as a cure for asthma, cough, and pneumonia. Today, we know heroin does not cure asthma, cough, and pneumonia, despite what the experts of the day had said, right? Perhaps Gustav was partaking in too much uh, dicetylmorphine and maybe had a cough, and maybe that explains his squirrely logic. Gustav argues the extreme opinion or position that crowds come to Kind of rich coming from this guy. Extreme positions when he does all his overgeneralizations. He argues the extreme opinion or position that crowds come to is because it's the opinion that they would never form based on their own personal reasoning. They do it because it's not their normal thing. So is this because of a loss of inhibition? Regardless, it's yet another baseless assertion on Gustav's part. No evidence. We don't know. He's just making the assertion. This is it. Believe it. All right. Gustav, uh, his, his main point is his main fallacy. He's assuming the crowd is a single organism. He claims that, right? I would like to see proof of that, but there is none. Even still today, 130 years later, 35 years, whatever it was, some in the crowd will believe a false story if they are otherwise uninformed, but an informed person in the crowd won't. This is what logic would lead us to say, but that's not. Gustav says this does not, not what happens. His model of the crowd is an oversimplification that should not be taken seriously. I don't think, and maybe he didn't intend for it to be. Like I said, this book, I'm always on the edge of, is it really just a joke? Is he just joking? He's just pulling our chain. <clears throat> but the fact that some people took it seriously and still do today, in many industries, politicians and advertisers, you know, Hitler's, Mussolini's, psychologists like Freud, you know, it goes to show how shitty that whole field is if they're believing stuff based on assertion. You know, science. It's just about assertions now. Right? If you listen to a politician, that's absolutely what they believe science is. There may be the lowest common denominator thing going on, despite Gustav not claiming Explicitly, that's not what's happening. You know, you could picture, you know, an angry crowd scaring an individual to fall in line, right? Uh, they better get with the crowd, you know, so then the whole crowd appears to be equally stupid. Um, but he explicitly said that's not the case. So we got in his crowd, that is not the case. So we got to throw that away. So Gustav talks about the imagination of the crowd. He says, when reasoning power is absent, imagination is very powerful. <clears throat> it's interesting that he said that because I watched a documentary on, um, was it Alzheimer's or stroke or something like that? And when people lose a, uh, a large portion of the brain that has to do with, you know, reasoning and logic, they sometimes become like almost savants in the arts. <laughs> so not to say that artists... Or savant artists are have no logic or reasoning, but there was a correlation between 
people, I can't remember what, if it was, if it was like Alzheimer's or something, but they, these people, when they're negatively affected, other, like, you know, people say blind people get better hearing or whatever, but this is not the case. That was, it's arts. So, uh, imagination becomes increased. So not to say that those with the strong imagination lack logic or reason. This is not what I'm saying, but, <clears throat> but Gustav says that the, uh, when reasoning power is absent, imagination is very powerful. All right. So first off, we haven't determined that reasoning is absent. He claims it. Um, I will use the principle of charity to interpret it to mean that the effect of imagination is strong on those with poor reasoning skills. It's important to differentiate that there is no correlation between truth, false, and imagination. You can imagine something that is true. Or you can imagine something that is false, right? Correct solutions are found and are first created in our imaginations in certain situations. But anyone who worked on a problem knows that their imagination might be wrong too, right? Just because it comes from our imagination, there's no correlation between right or wrong. Although probably wrong, right? There's a greater probability of something being wrong, maybe. I don't know. That's just a wild guess. Gustav claims the images in the crowd's minds are almost as lifelike as reality. Wow. Based on what evidence? His own? <laughs> he uses the metaphor of the crowd being asleep, like a dream. He's really getting into the head of, the, of his crowd, right? They can't reason or reflect, which allows crackpots ideas to manifest, which they normally would quickly disbelieve. And like in a dream, the crowd has suspended their disbelief of the highly improbable, which makes most improbability stand out and have the most impact on the crowd, according to Gustav. It makes a good story, but he gives no proof or evidence. Perhaps a comedian uh, could try the most improbable scenarios to see if the crowd responds to those as a social experiment. Perhaps we are wired to take notice of improbable events. Notice the difference, right? You get to notice the difference is, as a thing, is probably a routine passed down by natural selection. We have this routine to notice the difference. But if the difference, if the differences are lies, I think we grow tired quickly if there is no truth. Then there is fiction, which we enjoy if it's done well. But we know it's a fiction. We compare it to the norm of other fiction, which can also be boring. So the, the differences have to be with real life. And the people should not be comparing it to fiction, but with real life. So Gustav says the marvelous and legendary events or stories strike crowds with the greatest effect. Probably he means affect, right? Or maybe both. Boring is the enemy when it comes to controlling the crowd, according to Gustav. Appearances are more important than reality when it comes to controlling the crowd. Sounds a lot like perception is reality. Gustav goes on that crowds can only think in images. Only images that terrify or attract them. Terrify or attract and motivate action. 
He claims the theater has enormous impact. So the movie theaters, back in the day, I guess there's, you know, stage, has enormous impact because the entire audience experiences the same emotion at the same time. The unconscious spectator realizes these are imaginary adventures and yet still laughs and weeps. This is true as an effect on the individual, but says nothing about the hive mind of the crowd. There was an experiment done in modern times using uh, the theater as an experiment. I think they might have been, you know, might have read Gustav's book or something. I don't know. But uh, I contacted the people who uh, conducted the experiment, and I'm still waiting on the results. They never got back. To, well, they got back to me, but they didn't give me the results. They said they were going to, and nothing happened, right? So Gustav writes the, uh, you think they'd just give me a summary of whether it worked or not. So uh, <clears throat> he wrote the, uh, the unreal has almost as much influence on the crowd as the real. They don't distinguish between the two, according to Gustav. The unreal has almost as much influence on the crowd as the real. They don't distinguish between the two. So he's saying the real still has more influence than the unreal. At least there's that. So go to a Comic-Con and see the fans, you know, are they impacted? <laughs> they don't believe it's real. Well, there's one guy I know that thinks he's Iron Man or Robert Downey Jr. <laughs> as Iron Man, but that's not the norm. So Gustav continues, ideological conquerors are based on popular imagination and working on this imagination is how mindless crowds are led from Judaism Christianity, Islam, to the threatening invasion of socialism today are all a consequence of strong impressions produced by the imagination of the crowd. That's, <laughs> that's Gustav. So socialism was a threatening invasion of the day back then, 1895. I see evidence of imagination trumping reason. And today we, we see this, right? I, listen to the news people to believe it right they are their imaginations when people are when things are framed a certain way and then people f connect the dots themselves and make assumptions right they're using their imagination and they're not following reason they're just well a reason what what's you know what's plausible based on the evidence that was given which is not true and they're being manipulated by that right so their their imagination trumps actual reason but i do think it's plausible that imagination is a powerful tool uh, used on those who are uninformed on a subject. Words that evoke mental imagery can be powerful and provoke strong emotions. We need to check our priorities when it comes to absorbing new information. If it's important or evoking an emotional response, we should take a beat and start analyzing that information critically. If we don't feel the need to, or you know, to take the time to do that, why bother listening at all? Chances are we are not getting an accurate story and we're being manipulated because we're too lazy to take a beat, to be critical of the uh, appeal to emotions that are being pumped out at us by a lying media, and lying politicians, and lying PR firms. We also need to pay close attention to the definitions and if the definitions are being twisted by the manipulator or just someone who is honestly ignorant, misinformed, or simply, you know, we should just look them up if we aren't 100% sure if we know the definition or all the different definitions of that word. I look up definitions of words I think I know all the time. 
And they're like, oh, there is that other use that I'm not familiar with, right? It's common sense, but we're often lazy as a species. And manipulators know that, and that's a vector of attack, right? So Gustav claims that all the great statesmen of every time and every country have regarded the popular imagination as their source of power, right? Darth Vader. So we need to define popular imagination. Is it a narrative, you know, a story created by those seeking power? Is that what's in the popular imagination? Is it the zeitgeist he's talking about? Just what is this concept of popular imagination? It's the mindset of the people who fall into the collective mind of the crowd, whatever that is, being those who accept the image presented to them uncritically. So they're accepting it. So the sheeple who believe the news and the politicians, that's who he's talking about. They are the crowd, which is differentiated from the people. The suckers who fall for it, right? All right, I'm thinking I'm honing in on just what Gustav is on about, right? So it seems to be the sheeple. <clears throat> Not all the people, which he does say. So you got to filter through his uh, weeds here. So as the the people outside the crowd, and sometimes in it, it's the same group. So we can morph in between, in and out. So what is our best course of action to try to maintain the most reasonable patterns of inference, the most reasonable way of thinking, right? We, we fight images or narratives presented to us, or do we fight the mechanism of manipulation? Narratives change weekly. The mechanism of manipulation is ongoing, hence this podcast. So I'm trying to, I've already answered that question in a meta form by creating this podcast. The mechanism that we should be studying because they change the narratives weekly. So fighting the narrative is irrelevant. It's the mechanism that they're using to shove this, the narratives into our face that we need to understand. So my problem is bringing this vast yet subtle subject to the people, including the sheeple, right? They can then help spread it to the crowd, right? It's not an impossible task. The material is larger than a meme, but people can understand it. Or perhaps this is a, a large meme in itself, a large complicated, I don't know if you know uh, mimetic theory or not, but it's, it's an idea that uses people to propagate itself. We need a seed, a catalyst of exposure. But since I'm reading a book on the subject that was written in 1895 and the masses still don't know or pay attention to it, I mean, how much hope do we have? Or perhaps we're conditioned to disregard the subject. I do remember a lot of anti-reading and anti-nerd stuff in movies growing up and, and still today, you know, don't read, don't be smart. Only nerds are smart. Be dumb like us. Don't read. <laughs> Right. They were, they were talking about the, uh, they were talking, uh, Jordan Peterson and the, uh, intellectual dark web, all those people who read, oh, it's like, really don't be a reader, be a Marxist. You know, this is what they're saying. The idiots. What about all the other people who know this stuff? Have they tried to explain it to their fellow man or are they trying to use it against them? 
perhaps everyone who knows this stuff has gone into politics, news, advertising, or PR firms. How come we don't hear about them? Maybe, maybe people, maybe there's a million other podcasts like this out there and millions of books and nobody's just paying attention to them. I'm, I'm unaware of a lot of them, most of them, because I don't think there's that many. People don't want to hear how a transistor works. They just want to listen to their radio or use their phone. They don't want to know how they're being manipulated. They just want to be whatever, live their lives and, and believe the garbage that is least offensive to them, despite it not being true. It appears to be the case. Now, I'm not saying everybody, right? But I got to be careful. And this is just an assertion. I'm acting like uh, Gustav here, right? So you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. I guess there are other things more important than who's controlling our lives, like fashion or, you know, sports or idiot actors. <laughs> yeah, I need to know the leaf score. That's I got to watch that game, man. That's that's so much more important than knowing how I'm being manipulated and how my rights are being taken away from me, right? Yeah. So hierarchies. Perhaps natural selection has programmed the bulk of humans to be easy prey for the manipulator. Ideologically vulnerable to programming to have hierarchies, a natural hierarchy that is challenged when the limits are breached. So the, the hierarchy of the herd, right? So a feedback, perhaps there's a feedback loop um, to control the bulk from the top and then the top from the bulk, right? If when the, when the feedback, if they, if they, you know, the crowd doesn't like the, what the leader's doing, they attack the leader, they throw them off the, uh, the cliff, right? Their fall from grace. The bulk want leaders to direct the mass in a general direction. And when the idiot leaders demonstrate their inferiority of judgment, the bulk remove them. Could be, I don't know, complex systems. Who knows, man? Leaders are the disposable ideological point man the bulk send out to break the path or to stay on it. The ultimate power is always with the bulk. Is our DNA already coded for this super organism of society? Are we already a hive creature? We currently can't survive on our own. We have castes for different duties, important ones like farming and garbage removal to unimportant ones like actors and entertainers. We share 50% of our DNA with a fruit fly. That is just bizarre. <laughs> 50%. Look it up. If you think about it, even a simple life like a fruit fly is a very complicated machine. We have no idea how its little mind works. You know, it has instincts, memory, balance, control of multiple legs. It can fly, walk, convert matter into energy, reproduce, evolve. And its entire body is, is, is packaged in something smaller than a sesame seed. So if we think of our behavior as a result of evolution, then there are those mechanisms of manipulation. You know, are they a result of it? When is the... The idea of false information good for a an organism. I don't think the idea of false information is good for an organism. Well, I guess defensively, camouflage is a beneficial trait. That is false information. You're giving out false information and you're trying to protect yourself by being camouflaged, right? For deceit 
of other animals. It also makes sense that tricking other animals, or if you're offensive as well, if you're a camouflage predator, right, you're going to be camouflaged and you can get some more food by the unwary uh, dupes walking by, right? So it makes sense that tricking others has led to greater sur- survival rate for the trickster. A lot of this manipulation, I would say, is learned, could be instinctive, but the concept of the naive person who falls for everything would indicate that it is not a intrinsically hardwired thing into our species. It may be in a line, like a family or a group, depending, you know, their their DNA, their, their branch, but uh, it doesn't seem to be of our entire species. Otherwise, we wouldn't have such naive people. Are there people who are genetically more manipulative than others? I would say it makes sense. Why would there not be? What would there be stopping one group of people from being more manipulative than others? Evolution does not revert to the mean. Otherwise, it wouldn't evolve. It would be a uh, relatively static system with minor deviations from the norm. It just keeps on going. It branches and it makes new, more crazy things, right? Nature creates diversity in case of cataclysm. Does natural selection give a shit about the dominant life form? Ask the dinosaurs. The group would have a competitive advantage over the individual in a lot of situations. So perhaps we've evolved as a social animal for that. We can obviously achieve greater things with division of labor and specialization. Why do we also have the instinct for self-sufficiency? Probably because there are limits to our social structures. (laughs) They might collapse. We know they collapse. So the cells in my body need my entire body to survive for their survival. In the extreme, humans don't need uh, society for their survival. We need society for our thriving, or do we? Uh, We need it for our modern life, absolutely, but perhaps a more physical life would be beneficial for our species to get out there and, you know, be nomads or garden or whatever, you know. Perhaps we can no longer uh, survive without society. Well, the numbers of the planet, we obviously can't. So this is a problem. This is what the globalists are trying to correct with their great reset and killing off the majority of the population. Allegedly, according to conspiracy theorists. Uh, So, you know, maybe we can survive without society, given how fragile society is. You know, the great filter may be upon us. If you don't know what the great filter is, you should look it up. If this great filter uh, exists, uh, is it a mechanism of natural selection? You know, the great reset? Burn the experiment and start over, right? We think we control our bodies, but our body tells our brain when we're hungry. The bacteria in our gut controls our mood. We are controlled by the microscopic. Like the leaders in society, we are given a certain amount of autonomy, but when we go off the rails, the bulk of our body takes back control. (laughs) So how long can you stay awake or not eat? I mean, it's possible, but hard. I guess some people starve themselves. So who should we listen to? Our gut or our brain? Do we even have a choice? (laughs) Are we living in a deterministic world where choice is an illusion? Who knows? So they used to work, you know, 
together for our survival, but now our gut directs us towards unhealthy choices, eating junk food, too much food, et cetera, because it's, et cetera, because it's, it's too easy to get food today. Not too easy, but it's very easy to get food today. And fat and, and sugars, which, you know, probably are harder to get or were harder to get for us in the past. I'm assuming. Could be wrong. I don't know. So that drive was probably, uh, you know, necessary to motivate us to get us off our asses when we lived in the wild. You know, boy, you better get up there and go find some food because you're going to die. Right? So that hunger was motivation, right? The drive. Now we have easy access and still have that primitive drive. So something is screwed up in our evolution or our society has changed faster than our evolution can keep up with. We have a lot of those, uh, what do they call that? Uh, vestigial, uh, vestigial characteristics. I don't know. Those who have too much drive for eating in this environment will die off. And those who have less drive will live healthier, longer lives. But if society collapses, the drive to go find food will have been lost. Another species bites the dust, I guess. I don't know, right? So we're always in an evolving, changing situation, right? So perhaps those who eat too much will die off, like I said. We've advanced faster than evolution. We, we need to hack. Do we need to hack? I think we do need to hack our system to be healthy in this environment or just not just the offspring that aren't as, you know, uh, wanting of bags of chips and junk food uh, will survive and the ones that aren't will die off. Perhaps that's what's going to happen, natural selection, right? Maybe, maybe not, I don't know. But there's more to learn today, unless we're being conditioned to want to eat those bags of chips because we didn't evolve eating bags of chips, right? I don't know. There's, there's more to learn today than yesterday. You know, our knowledge base is exploding and knowledge is power. So the potential to have vast power is exploding every day based on knowledge. Gustav had a uh, preoccupation with Napoleon. Why? Because they were both French, because Napoleon gained so much power. Gustav flip-flops on the control of the crowd. He stressed that the imaginations of the crowd cannot be impressed or controlled by intelligent reasoning or by demonstration or by cunning rhetoric. Yet he goes on about how Napoleon, with his cunning rhetoric you know, and intelligent reasoning, controlled the you know the the masses. Well, which is it, man? So, but demonstrate. You think of the word demonstrate. Demonstrated by cunning rhetoric. Demonstrate has an, an interesting etymology from Latin uh, D, which means I think entirely, and monstrare, which means to point out, to demonstrate, means entirely point out, to show or reveal, which is related to monstrum, which it means to uh, a divine omen or wonder, which is the source of the word monster, which is kind of interesting if you think of that, right? Monstrum means divine omen or, or wonder. Oh, I wonder what that is. It's a monster, right? Isn't that kind of spooky? A monster came from revealing about something that you wonder or actually wonder came from monster. No, monster came from wonder. Yeah, weird. Anyways, sounds like a good thing. Anyway. Demonstrate, demonster, entirely monstrous, 
entirely revealed. So Gustav says, imagination, mental images in the mind of startling and clear image, freed from all accessory explanation or merely having as an accompaniment a few marvelous or mysterious facts. Mysterious is critical. Examples are in point. Uh, are a great victory, a great miracle, a great crime, a great hope. Things must be laid out uh, and their genesis must never be indicated. On the, on the surface, it sounds like it makes sense until you realize he's just making assertions again with no evidence. <laughs> like, ooh, this sounds like uh, some secret sauce. <laughs> Hitler read this book and, and he laid things out and their genesis was what he harped on. And it worked for him. So it does make sense that a crowd would respond more to the clickbait of a great injustice, victory, miracle, or hope. This is the modus operandi of the legacy corporate moves, news and many vloggers. Clickbait, extremism, truth be damned. <clears throat> like a hammer being more jarring than the slow knife. Gustav claims many small events have no impact on the crowd where one larger event will, despite it being less disastrous than all the smaller ones put together. It does seem plausible that the target won't notice or rebel against many small things as much as they would a large, sudden, jarring thing. Gustav uses a ship disaster in the news for a week, yet no one cared about the other thousand fifty three ships that were lost that same year. This is a lot what happens in the news still today. They make you think, oh, there was only one that major ship disaster, but there was over a thousand other ship disasters that nobody cares about because they didn't hear about it in the news. Right? This example is further evidence that Gustav is referring to the people who believe the news as the crowd. Though it's not like anyone would not believe the shipwreck happened. I'm sure it happened. It's not the believing. It's the, it's the minds that are controlled and occupied or preoccupied by what the news is telling them, controlling the crowd. I wrote on my, my webpage for this podcast, your attention is their resource and your emotion is their product. I hope I spelled there right. <laughs> T-H. Anyways, so this is what I'm referring to. News, social media, movies, TV, radio, magazines, newspapers, books, online games, politicians, advertisers, more subtle forms of PR, you know, working in the shadows with the, the psyops types. This is not to say that we shouldn't be entertained or read the news, but we should have our ideological defensive armor on when we do. Gustav may be right that it's not the facts that are impactful but how they are brought to our attention that has the effect. He writes that the images must be startling, which fills and troubles the mind. To know the art of impressing the imagination of crowds is to know the art of governing them. This is probably a line Mussolini and Hitler both took to heart. Now Gustav talks about the religious shape assumed by cr the crowd's convictions. Again, he writes that the conviction of the crowd is different from the individuals comprising it. So he's going back to his earlier definitions, right? This is a pill a bit too big for me to swallow. I haven't seen any evidence to prove this. 
He claims that since crowds don't reason, they accept or reject ideas as a whole. They tolerate neither discussion nor contradiction, and that suggestions transform themselves into acts. This is, sounds like it's pretty close to being true, but it's assertions, no evidence, and again, it's not everybody. It's the people who sort of believe the news, right? And not everybody that believes the news. We sometimes all believe the news. Sometimes we get caught and we're like, oh, that was false. The news lied to us. <laughs> so an audience uh, at a comedy show does tolerate discussion and laughs at contradiction. And they do not act. They only applaud and drink beer. But that audience is not a Gustavian crowd. His crowd is the Toronto Star subscriber or the CBC viewer. Given that definition, it's hard to disagree with Gustav. They do not tolerate discussion and are highly suggestible to the false imagery pumped out by the media. But what's different is that Gustav claims the crowd is uncontrollable and may turn on those who dare try. Whereas the Toronto Star Tontos never appear to turn on their supplier of false imagery. Are they in a chronic state of Gustavian crowd? Even Gustav thinks the crowd is a temporary event. But look at me, personally, I was a hardcore CBC subscriber. I listened to CBC radio, I watched TV, CBC news. I, I trusted all the garbage, right? Same with uh, NPR and all that stuff. I was a hardcore, so I did eventually turn. So maybe I'm part of the crowd that did eventually turn on their evil masters. <laughs> and all the other idiots haven't yet. I don't know. Or perhaps I just started thinking a little more critically from reading and I saw that it was bullshit and I called it the bullshit. It could be both. Who knows? Perhaps our uh, modern conjurers of deception have figured a way to dupe people and maintain the crowd state for an indeterminate length of time. This is possible. Gustav is only begging for someone to call it his bullshit. He claims here that crowds only entertain violent and extreme sentiments. Sentiment, of course, means an attitude towards a situation or event, an opinion. I think of uh, sentiment in this context as an emotionally based opinion. Hence the sentimental sentimentality part of the word sentiment. But I call bullshit on his absolutism, claiming that crowds only entertain violent sentiments. Again, people would say, well, if it's not violent, if it's, if it's not entertaining a violent sentiment, then it's not a Gustavian crowd because it's just the definition, right? No one or no crowd, no crowd or no person only entertains violent sentiments, no matter how violent they are. Right. Perhaps a uh, stereotypical mob that is in the act of violence, but Gustav defines a crowd outside of those parameters when he wrote about the shipwreck in the newspaper. Those people were not in the act of violence, yet he's referring to them as the crowd, you know, who reads the paper when committing an act of violence. <laughs> I don't know. I'm reading the paper. Maybe, maybe reading the paper is an act of violence. I don't know. On your, on your uh, faculties. Gustav is embarrassing himself here, right? Does he, this, does this mean we should throw everything he says? No, possibly. But since he was and is such a large influence on the manipulators of our society, seeing what he claims helps us get, get a bit uh, into their heads. 
It feels like there's a harmonic of truth to what he claims sometimes, even though there's no evidence. It's like I was saying before, you kind of want to believe what he's saying, even though there's no evidence. That's just stereotype. Not everything, something, right? He wrote, sympathy quickly turns into adoration and antipathy is transformed into hatred. Antipathy f- means feeling against someone or a thing, right? But if you look at the George Floyd riots, sympathy for the drugged out piece of shit George Floyd turned into adoration. Idiots painted his face on buildings and made shirts for Christ's sake. The man did not deserve to die, but he sh- should definitely not be adored. He threatened a pregnant woman with a weapon while his goons robbed her. He was a piece of shit. I have antipathy towards those who adore George Floyd, but I don't hate them. But Gustav isn't talking about me. He's talking about his crowd. And he claims if his crowd feels the opposite about something I do, they hate me. Sounds like a Canadian Liberal Caucus member. Normally, we define religious as believing in a divine ruling power, uh, an omnipotent God, but Gustav is using the word religious to mean worship of a being that is supposed superior, fear of that being's power, blind submission to its commands, inability to discuss its dogmas, the desire to spread them, and a tendency to consider as enemies all by whom they are not accepted. Whether such a sentiment apply to the invisible God, hero, or political concept, it is religious, according to Gustav. So he includes the political partisans that worship their ideology and believe it's superior. They fear the power of the ideology and give blind submission to its commands, are unable to discuss its dogmas, and desire to spread them and consider all who are not accepted or accepting of the ideology as enemies. Pretty much sums up the Trudeau government. But it's not a temporary crowd as Gustav's crowd is, according to him. Looking at the words Gustav uses to describe his crowd is enlightening. Obsess. Obsess means what? Preoccupy the mind continually to a troubling extent. Infatuation is a short-lived passion for something or someone. A fanatical is excessive single-minded zeal. Zeal, what zeal mean? Obsessively concerned with something. Gustav claims that the crowds endow their leader or political idea with a mysterious power. He's clearly not talking about a mob. A mob in a riot has no leader. His crowd reads papers and has a leader or political idea. Back to religion. He says people are not religious. Again, this is Gustav's definition of religious, not being a deity, but I already described it. So he says people are not religious just because they worship a divine being, but when they are fanatical for a cause or person who becomes the goal and guide of their thoughts and actions. So the only people I can think of off the top of my head that fits Gustav's definition of religious are Islamic extremists or perhaps communists who are obsessive with their ideology. Maybe vegans. Vegans would also fit that. <laughs> Maybe, yeah, yeah. So, so the guide and goal of their actions. Well, I guess anyone who is passionate about a field of study or career would fit. 
So if they were obsessed and thought of nothing else but it, you know, like fashion, you know, pro sports, uh, golf, anything, you know, they feel they could fit into Gustav's definition of religious. I'm being religious about golf. I don't know why Gustav just didn't say religious like fervor, right? Fervor meaning, you know, an intensity of emotion or a passive, passionate feeling. Intolerance and fanaticism, the necessary accompaniments of the religious sentiment. They are inevitably displayed by those who believe themselves in the possession of the secret of earthly or eternal happiness. I don't consider myself a religious man, but it's a fallacy to think all religious people are intolerant or fanatics. Today, if one says a, all Muslims are religious fanatics, they would be, you know, obviously wrong due to overgeneralization. But this is not what Gustav is saying, is he? Remember, he defined religious to include the non-God types. He says people are not religious just because they worship a divine being, but when they are fanatical for a cause or person who becomes the goal and guide of their thoughts and actions. It's easy to get things wrong when people redefine words. He should add a prefix or a suffix to the word he's redefining. So, you know, when... We won't forget. So maybe I'll do that. Gustav's, uh, maybe I should call Gustav's religious uh, crowd religious. I don't know. That's very Gustavian. His last name is Laban. So maybe I guess I could call it Labanian. <laughs> both sound good. I'll use both. No, not probably won't use Labanian. So his crowd, which is a different definition to what we normally use for crowd, which I'm still trying to pin down ex- actually what he means by it is defined to have a religi- religiosity, a religiosity, which is not what we define as religion. Well, not what I normally define as religion. I, mean, I should look it up. Maybe that is the definition of religion. But a new crowd religion that might confuse too, right? Crowd religion, because you think, well, it's all crowds have religions, but a Gustavian cloud, re- cloud religion, or we could call it uh, Labanian religion. I don't know. So this Gustavian crowd are intolerant and fanatical about something. So this goes to show that Gustav's crowd doesn't exist without a cause, something they are focusing on obsessively. Can a crowd be angry, 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 and not know why? We've all seen people upset and not know why. Could it be hormones? (laughs) PMS? Could I have been angry and not know why? Sure. Feeding the monster. Why would I be feeding the monster? That part of my consciousness that chooses to feed the monster is not controlled by anger. That part can choose to let in anger or not. But I think there are times when a situation bypasses that control valve and we jump right to a, an emotional-based uh, anger. <laughs> I guess all anger is emotional-based. Or maybe, uh, you know, so fast we don't notice. Just whoosh, right? If, if we are conscious about what emotions we currently have, then we can question, you know, I'm angry. Should I turn the, off the tap of angry and, and or let it run? Sometimes, most times, I'm sure we aren't conscious of what emotion we currently are feeling or that one emotion, I suppose, or more than one emotion. Is calm an emotion? I don't know. Being aware of what emotion you are in is critical for controlling your emotions. 
beyond what your genetic predisposition is, assuming you even want to control your emotions. If you control them, it doesn't mean that you still don't feel them. You just don't let them control you, which is sometimes easier said than done. But then again, maybe being angry uh, is what uh, we are naturally supposed to do. You know, why else would natural selection predispose us towards that in those situations? So Gustav's crowd are intolerant and fanatic, and they believe they're in possession of a secret, earthly, or eternal happiness. Me, me, and me. I'm so close on this. <laughs> I get what he's saying. But tolerance is something that has limits. And when it comes to the secret of happiness, that would change from person to person and likely day to day or even minute by minute for that individual. Happiness, I think, is a state of doing what you want when you want. That is also the definition of power, I think. Interesting. Maybe Gustav also thinks that what makes us happy is changing second by second. And that is why the secret is so elusive, because it is a constantly changing point in the dimension of mental space-time, <laughs> or mental time as there doesn't appear to be any space, I suppose. Deep, right? But can that secret to happiness not be known as it's always changing? Or is the experience of it knowing it so that that cannot be unknown? <laughs> Changing things can be known. Our speed is the changing location uh, per time. So that is a good model, right? Speed is not the same as the details of the ground beneath us, which would be the analog to what makes us happy at that moment. So the changing of what makes us happy changes, and perhaps the rate of change can also change. It can slow way down so that one thing makes us happy for a long time, and then it may speed up and we meet may need uh, many things in quick succession to make us happy. And there are different layers to it as well. There's the what makes us happy in the long run, medium run, medium run, and what makes us happy at this moment. Or in other ways too, right? What would, what would make me happy? Learning would make me happy. The fact that I have choice of what things to learn about make me happy. Picking the things that I like make me happy. The learning and the having learned new things makes me happy. Using those new things to learn other new things makes me happy. <laughs> learning how to keep myself in a position where I can learn things makes me happy. Learning how to fight others who want to stop me from doing my learning makes me happy. <laughs> it's getting deep, right? Learning and application. The goal is to be able to do, right? To keep learning. How can this be used against us? Manipulation. We want to learn. Wanting to learn can be a trap for the unwary. The manipulator can plant interesting secret knowledge as a trap to stop you from learning which steers your wants away from actual learning and now perpetrate the virus of unlearning you just got you know, by learning wrong things, right? Because it's going to consume your time and resources. The defense against this trap is, of course, to be self-critical to criticize one's own thinking and views. If the logic is sound, keep on trucking. If not, castrate it. Books like Gustav's might be a good example. If all his ideas are bullshit, which do not help us learn more, to see how we are all truly manipulated, 
which takes us away from that and what truly makes us happy. And instead, what makes us happy if we don't know the truth, which is a subprime happiness. If all his ideas are bullshit, then we can learn how he tried to manipulate us with his bullshit and keep our eye out for those techniques, as we've seen with other manipulators like Chairman Mao. Not everything is garbage, and it would be too easy to call it out. They have to paint the turd in beautiful truth so that it looks delicious and true. But once you take a bite, you're into ideology. <laughs> Not that all ideologies are bad. Ones that are critical of themselves using as much reason as we can muster and allow for correction are good ideologies. But one must be wary. That's how Mao painted his ideologies <laughs> in some beautiful truths. But it was just those truths covering, veneering the turds of Marxism and uh, Maoism, I guess you'd call it. Gustav wrote that uh, crowds assume blind submission, fierce intolerance, and the need for violent propaganda. Today, with the big lies being presented by politicians and the news, one might agree with Gustav's definition. If we were talking about a political ideology that is not self-critical, which he might be. Irrational ideologies demand blind submission, fierce intolerance, and the need for violent propaganda. I think Gustav and I would agree on that. Do they need violent propaganda or just want it? Natural interpretation? Either way. They gun for violent propaganda. What is violent propaganda? Definite, harsh, clear content that is angry and insulting and belittling to anyone who disagrees with it, not just the target if there is one. With propaganda, the audience is always the true target. Even when a politician is being ad hominemed, the propagator isn't actually attacking the politician, they are attacking the reader with their attempted manipulation of what the reader is supposed to think, or the listener. Gustav writes, the hero acclaimed by a crowd is a veritable god for that crowd. Veritable means literal. So Gustav's crowd has an idea and a leader or a hero, definitely more complex than a mob. If we think about who would fit this definition, he's talking about far radical weirdos like the eco-terrorists, Antifa, and other extremist cults. When we think of globalists, do they have a hero? They don't want the world to believe they exist, cramming their ideology down our throats at university, so he or she or it is not publicized, if there is one. Gustav claims the crowd is temporary, so that would mean this leader or hero he speaks of is a transient or at least capable of being transient. Is his crowd just a bunch of individuals who have the same ideology? No. He at one point claimed the crowd was a mass of people, or maybe I interpreted it that sloppily. I don't know. It appears to me that the crowd he is speaking of are like-minded people. Gustav is stressing the other and ignores that he might share the traits of his crowd himself, like a closed-minded elitist. Gustav claims that all the religious or political creeds, or 
guiding principles have established themselves solely because they were successful at inspiring the crowds with those fanatical sentiments which have as a result that men find their happiness in worship and obedience and are ready to lay down their lives for their idol. Sounds a lot like what I was saying just a few minutes ago, but what makes us happy? Being hijacked by manipulators using the poison fruit of secret knowledge, which is a little more complex than just clickbait. Not to minimize the unrecognized complexity of making good memes. <laughs> Maybe that's why the story of Adam and Eve is trying to warn us about, you know, the, the manipulator who tries to steer us away from what truly makes us happy and into the untrue world of deception for whatever purpose. So then... What makes us happy? Being able to do what we want when we want is actually the Garden of Eden in this model. Then power is also the Garden of Eden. Interesting that there are so often two interesting that there are so often two competing interpretations. Yin and yang, good and bad. Is power intrinsically bad? No. It can be used for both good and bad. Gustav uses Rome as an example and argues it wouldn't have lasted 500 years if it was ruled by force. It was maintained by religious admiration of the leaders. <laughs> oh, yeah, is that right? Which is, I consider bullshit. It may have been at times a velvet glove over an iron fist, but recall the Tarpeian Rock, where the people used to toss corrupt leaders and other criminals over. That wouldn't be if it was all admiration. When Gustav wrote, not by force, he clearly meant not by physical force, but today we know that mental force is more powerful than physical force. Getting your target to want to do what you want them to is way more effective until they realize you've been manipulating them. Then you're toast. If they do, which they probably won't. Arx Tarpea Capitoli Proxima. The Tarpean Rock is close to the capital. Don't skirt close to the Tarpean Rock. <laughs>